This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the program where we give you the latest, greatest research and uh, ideas on how to take back your life. Today, of course, no exception. We're also celebrating Bat Appreciation Day. Uh, not that bat. Not Batman. You don't like the 60s Batman? More? No. I love that You don't appreciate Batman. him. No, I grew up on that Batman. That guy. I always felt like a little Robin to that Batman. And I even had underoos that were Robin and Batman. Had a lot of underoos. By the way, in the new Lego Batman movie, I yeah. love the reference that they make to the 60s Batman because he's got the sh- uh, bat repellent shark spray or something like that. Yeah. And he, he uses it. it. Yeah. And he's, it does work. It does work. Isn't that where Aquaman came from? Terry says no, because he's the only one in the room that would know where Aquaman actually came from. He's holding back. Can we get him? Terry, uh, where did Aquaman come from? Arthur Curry. Oh, boy. Is half human, half Atlantean. Pardon? His mom was like a land dweller. His dad was the king of Atlantis. Wow. Yeah, so he ended up going back. Yeah, sort of. He goes back and it's kind of weird because it's it's not Poseidon, but it's kind of around those Maybe it was after Poseidon passed on. So he's like half fish, half man, and so he's kind of torn. That's part of the the appeal of the stories. He's kind of torn between two worlds. Mm. There's some stressors there. He has loyalty to the land, loyalty to the sea. Yeah. The land, makes him, the land makes him mad. He has, like, attack killer sharks that can come and help. Wow, cool. Yeah. He needed the shark repellent bat spray, I think is what it's called. See, right there, a pretty good example of just maybe you need to discover your hidden potential, Terry. Maybe there's something. What would be my hidden potential? You know, I ask one simple question. Where did Aquaman come from? Yeah. And you actually – First word I think you uttered was the guy's name. Arthur Curry, yes. See? Hidden potential. Nothing. It's in the trailer for the Justice League movie. Yeah. Bruce Wayne walks into an That's establishment right. no. in Alaska. We, we got it. We Iceland get it. Iceland or wherever it was. I'm looking yeah. for Arthur Curry. Yeah. And the whole place stops. Are you done? Okay, I'm sorry. Bat Appreciation Day. Not Batman. Bat. Just like the bat they find you find in your salad, mix that kind of bat. By the, the way, bacon bat. The new Thor trailer set a record for Disney in the first twenty four hours. The most views ever on a trailer for Disney. Even more than uh, the new Star Wars trailer. Well, I don't. Well, they said over that period of time. I think Star Wars is on its way out because now Thor is getting better trailer views and. Fate and Furious is well, getting a better launch than Star Wars. There's all like caveats. There's like it didn't the movie didn't release no, in China. No. Don't go, don't go there. Just, it, now yeah. you're trying to talk your way out of it. The story I read came the day before Star the Star Wars, Wars trailer is, came out. It's a dying franchise. No. Never mind the fact that none of these movies make as much money as movies back in the thirties, where that was people's only option was to go see it in the theater. But they like Gone with the Wind has sold the most tickets of any any movie ever. Well, tickets. Yeah. But they sold yeah, them but, for like 10 cents. Right. Well, 
But Gone with the Wind hasn't made the most money. And they also ran, Gone with the Wind ran for like five years. Yeah. Well, Star Wars always does like a re-release. Yeah, but it's not the same. It's not just in the theater down there for five years. By the way, one thing that you're probably missing as you two are talking. Yes. Is this wonderful music by Ron Williams. It's always playing. It's fine. John Williams' brother. Was it Ron or? I think it was Don. Was it Don Williams? Don Williams. Or Juan. Stars Battles. Stars Battles. Uh, This is the music made by John Williams, who, who created the Star Wars masterful, beautiful songs of all of the Star Wars dumb. Well, I think they both pitched their respective songs. <laughs> I think you saved it. To the, yeah. to the movie producers at the yeah. same time. Don they and went John. With, they went and, with John. Yeah. Probably a good choice. Don was kind of the underachiever, I think, of the Williams brothers. Hmm. Anywho. I uh, got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about how to discover your hidden potential. Hmm. So we're going to help Terry maybe dig deeper than Aquaman. What's wrong with that? You Nothing. Didn't, you didn't know that information. No, it's it's information I don't know that anyone needs to know. But you asked at By that the, moment. You were I like, know. I was trying to test, I'm and just, you okay. fell right into the trap. By the way, if you do dig deep enough, yeah. you'll dig right to China, where Aquaman will probably not premiere first. Yeah. So it's not going to break all the records. They have a delayed it's, response. You guys it's see how you work connected. together? You, once you get him thinking ticket prices— right. Then this turns into just we've lost the show. There's an Aquaman movie coming out next year. You know what? Again, uh, we'll put that in the nobody cares category. <gasps> By the way, <laughs> so rude. There's a music group called the Aqua Bats. Yeah, absolutely. They're quite good, actually. Mm. What's their best song? Um, not so good. Not so good, right? You can't even remember their best song. They're all just silly. Are they on Pandora? Are they on Pandora? Oh yeah, probably. Aqua Bats. I'm going to look them up. Pandora's paying someone 26 cents a play. Is that bats with a Z or an S? S. Okay. I think they're all LDS, too. LDS, Aquabats. Members of the LDS church. It's also blah, blah, blah day. So if you feel like your life is just blah and you got the blues, today's the day to discover your hidden potential. Our first guest will be talking about that. Wow. It's going to be awesome. So timely. So timely. So you can get out of the rut. Hmm. If you're just in this rut... And you're, you, you almost need to get retooled, maybe go from Aquaman to Batman. Don't go there. I was just I was just throwing that out there. Well, currently I'm reading uh, – never mind. Never mind. You still have the blues? I love the blues. <laughs> Little Jerem Jordan on the hmm. air sax. Yeah, basically. Aren't all saxophones air? Well, they're a wind instrument. Yeah, That's all good. We'll get into all that, plus uh, some fun stories um, from Empty News, the Matt Townsend News. Purse Snatcher runs into an officer's arms. Darn the luck. That's sweet. That's sweet. Right into just the hug you get, that first hug from a cop. Followed by the of the handcuffs. We'll get to that fun story in a minute. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what is going on that the, around the country that we need to worry about? Senator John McCain appeared on Meet the Press Sunday. He was asked about China's influence over North Korea. He said they can stop North Korea's nuclear development if they want to because of their control over the North Korean economy. China is the key. They can stop this if they want to because of their control over the North Korean economy. This may be the first test of this of this presidency, but China can shut them down and we should be, whether they're currency manipulators or not, we should expect them to act to prevent what could be a, a cataclysmic event. 
Over the weekend, North Korea launched a missile, but failed. It failed exploding early in the flight, like five seconds. Not really a good show from no. the missile program in North Korea. <laughs> Vice President Mike Pence visiting South Korea today, part of his 10-day tour of Asian nations. Less than an hour after wishing Americans Happy Easter on Sunday, President Donald Trump lashed out at protesters who demanded to see his tax returns a day earlier. I did what was an almost an impossible thing to do for a Republican easily won the Electoral College. Huh? Now tax returns are brought up again. That's off Twitter from the president. It's wow. rather cryptic to read sometimes. On Saturday, thousands across the country took to the streets to urge him to disclose his tax returns, something most of his White House predecessors have done. And again, we've been through this several times now. Yeah. At least 20 people were arrested on Saturday's protests. Clashes broke out between critics and supporters of the president. There was one in Berkeley that was rather... I guess entertaining to watch as you had the pro and the against, and they just kind of went at it, punching each other in the face. I, <laughs> I don't know. To uh, Trump, however, the protesters were not indicative of any public discontent. They were paid protesters. Ah. Someone should look into who paid for the small organized rallies yesterday. The election is over. But it seems like he should like paid protesters because it's more jobs for America. Yeah, he's creating more work, right? Right. Over the weekend, Times of London caused a bit of a stir in the United States. I wasn't sure if you were aware of the stir. A report that President Trump has made it clear that a ceremonial ride through London from uh, Royal Muse. You know what that is? I'm not sure what that is. A location in London to Buckingham Palace in one of Queen Elizabeth II's gilded carriages is, quote, an essential element of his state visit in October. The article was based on unidentified officials and security sources who warned that the procession would require an unprecedented monster of a security operation. These are open-air horse carriages. Wow. So they have to put people on rooftops, helicopters, secure the whole area. If the president of the United States is in a golden coach being dragged up the mall by a couple of horses, the risk factor is dramatically increased, the report said. The queen's carriage is bulletproof, the source said, but it would not be able to put up much resistance in the face of a rocket-propelled grenade or high-powered ammunition. Armored-piercing rounds would make a very bad show of things, it said. The White House has denied this report. Okay. But it kind of goes with Trump has a gilded... Like a penthouse in New York, so maybe yeah. he wants a gilted carriage ride. Or gilded, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. Not gilted. Well, it might be gilted, too. Could be. I don't know. Maybe that Gilted was... and gilded. Freudian. Um, and finally. Yes. More, probably the most important news of the day so what? far. A what? Japanese snack company called Calibi is announced Monday it will stop selling 18 types of potato chips and suspend the sale of 15 more after a bad potato harvest made normal production impossible. Oh, boy. Faced with shortages of the crispy snacks, Japanese consumers have have since gone on a chip-buying spree, emptying store shelves and reselling bags of chips for as much as six times their normal price online. A second brand uh, of chip in uh, Japan has likewise discontinued seven chip varieties, compounding the panic. The company... Uh, uses exclusively Japanese potatoes, the bulk of which are grown on a single island that was damaged by typhoons last year. Uh, Calabi was importing American potatoes to supplement its supply, but decided that they are, quote, this is the part we should really focus on, they're of insufficient quality and cannot cover the deficits. The American potatoes are of insufficient quality for Japanese consumers of potato chips. Them is fighting words. I don't know. Jeff, shut your mouth when you eat. Now, my question is, are we sending them the worst potatoes to keep the best ones for ourselves? Yeah, probably. Or are they getting the same potatoes we get? 
Are we just used to inferior? And we're quality? just used in you know bad no, potatoes. No, I think it's. And if that's the case, then what are they making Pringles out of? Because that's kind of not necessarily like your A grade potato. They're kind of using yeah. something else and making a potato crisp of some kind. And is it amazing how that potato in the Pringles fits perfectly in your mouth? Yes. I don't think those are real potatoes. So so many questions. So many questions that come out of the story. It's a lot of potatoes. By the way, I think this is going to be the beginning of the zombie apocalypse. Wow. Where did that come from? I have no idea. Okay. We're talking about potatoes. That went strange. Favorite Pringles flavor? Um, Salt and vinegar. Hmm. I like to have them at night by the campfire with the crickets just in the dark. You ever had ketchup chips? No. Really good. Really? I had the same skeptical sort of response that you're having now. Where would one get a ketchup chip? They make them. Pringles makes ketchup chips. <laughs> Canada? Apparently in Canada they're huge. Well, Canada. And I've because people <laughs> I've been around have gone to Canada, they bring them back and ketchup chips are really good. Canada seems to be early adopters of things that are, like, good and funny. Right. How did that come to be? You know, was somebody at a picnic and their their chips were mingling with the ketchup yeah, a little too closely? Don't put that ketchup on my— Just, just take a, a plain potato chip, put yeah. some ketchup on it. It's really good. It's just like hash browns and french fries and it's all really that. You not. know what I mean? It's all it's the same really stuff. Not. You say that, but hash browns are hash browns, and hash browns are good. But a potato chip— Yeah. You don't just put peanut butter on a potato. I didn't say or, peanut butter. I said ketchup. Try ketchup it. By it. the way. You're knocking something you've never tried. Okay. I think we have a new important news story of the day. What? Oh, no. What? Oh, no. I think we just had a, an Aquabats fan walk in and out the door. <gasps> handing me a paper requesting an Aquabats song. Ooh. Captain Hampton and the Fierce Midget Pirates of Willy Goat. That's one of the songs that I couldn't – it was impossible for me to remember the title. Don Shaline knows the name of an Aquabat song? Of course he does. Hold on. Let me see that. That is Captain Hampton and the Fierce Midget Pirates of Willy Goat. Sounds like we just took a bunch of words and put them together. That is a – is that a real name of a song? Okay. We must look this up because Captain Hampton – okay, so just some name of a captain. Right. And the fierce midget pirates of Willie Goat. Yeah, it's just sort of an ad lib situation. Just I don't think it's ad lib. That just sounds like a really weird date. Why don't we, why don't we'll play it at the end of this hour yeah. so I can get a good chunk of that song? This is from the Aquabats. Um, yeah. Uh, one story we just got to get out there while we're talking is purse snatchers run into an officer's arms and then gets arrested. A suspected purse snatcher literally ran into Port Lucie, St. Lucie's, Florida, officer's arms. Uh, Early Monday, police said Brian Simienski, 33, approached a Denny's employee who was sitting in her car while the restaurant was cleaned shortly after 3 a.m. Monday, police said. The employee asked Simienski if she could uh, help him, and he replied, yeah. This, he reportedly opened the car door, grabbed her purse, and the woman fought with him. Um, and then uh, the handle of the purse snapped off. The man scheduled to uh, spray the restaurant for bugs pulled up in his vehicle during the struggle. Simienski spotted the man and ran with broken purse strap to the woman's apron. 
What? That's crazy. Spot, the Simiansky spotted the man, ran with the broken purse strap and the woman's apron. Had both of them, by the way. The man uh, followed Simiansky. Someone called the police who arrived just on the scene, just as Simiansky was running by, and he ran right into the arms of the cop. <laughs> Arrested. That was nice. They had an embrace, though. That was neat. And then don't you just think you hold him? You just give him a little bear hug, and you're like, come on, pal. Everybody needs to hug a cop. Yeah. Hopefully not, you know, prior to being arrested. Yeah, or not when you're, like, trying to flee. By the way, uh, one of the nerd alerts that we used to play Uh was by the Aquabats. Really? Wait, hold on. Oh, give me a minute. The Aquabats we've been celebrating because it's a mix of Batman and Aquaman, and today is uh, Bat Appreciation Day. That's the Aquabats. Aquabats. Well, to, to leave you now, we will uh, leave with one of our favorite Aquabats songs um, Reminded that was reminded us of, um, oh, darn it. We'll play it, we'll it. Play it later. We'll I play promise. it later. But uh, if, if you want a good Aquabats song, go check out Captain Hampton and the Fierce Midget Pirates of Willie Goat. It's not just a bad dream anymore. It's now a song. I think the new version of that song is called uh, Little People, Billy Goat. Yeah. It probably yeah. Is. The fierce little people, pirates of the Willy Goat. Uh, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how to discover your hidden potential, how to get out of that rut. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. People may feel like they're at a disadvantage if they pursue a new field later in life, consequently falling into career ruts and feeling pigeonholed into their career track. It's easy to get stuck or stagnant in life and not know how to keep progressing. Mind Shift by our next guest uh, is is the book by our next guest, Barbara Oakley, is uh, a book solidly based on cutting edge science about how to change your brain to feel passion for learning something new and different, even uh, things that you thought you always disliked. And Barbara uh, Oakley is a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, a visiting scholar at the University of California, San Diego, and um, is uh, joining us today on the phone. Barbara, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, Matt, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet. Great to have you. And the book, your book, Mind Shift, Break Through the Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential, it, it really is. It's hard, it seems like. I mean, many people might even think impossible to to you know break these old habits or, or kind of start something new, especially if it's something to do something you thought you never liked or never wanted to do. It, people really do fool themselves about what their true potential can be. I know I was one of those kinds of people. I I just hated math and science, actually. I, I flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science. And it was only when I reached age 26, I was getting out of the military, and I I decided, well, wait a minute. I think I've kind of boxed myself into a corner because I really don't have a good professional expertise that people are looking for. I I studied language, and I I learned Russian. And so I decided to see if I could retrain my brain, and and lo and behold, I could. I'm now a professor of engineering. (laughs) Holy cow. 
But you don't. You didn't like math. But you're a professor of engineering with a PhD. Yeah, that's right. So that shows you that you can, you can just do a lot more than you think you can. And and I love math now. It's so funny to think. Uh, I remember I was actually called into the principal's office in high school because I just refused to have anything to do with it. I hated it so much. Hmm. Isn't it interesting? Because. A lot of these beliefs, it seems like, are they're they're created when we're younger, when we're more immature, when we we don't maybe have a, a more mature way of seeing life anyway, but they stay with us a long time. That's right. Um, and what they do is they kind of put us in in little boxes about what we're capable of doing. And in the past, it's always been pretty difficult to retrain yourself anyway because. To do it, you mostly had to stop and go to the university, and who really had the capability to do that? Um, If you had a family, it might be really difficult to do something like that. But nowadays, with the new online sources of learning, you can put your toe in the water, see if you can start learning something new and different. And there's even courses like the one that I helped create on learning how to learn that can help you to be more effective in, in changing yourself as a learner. And and the brain will adapt, you're saying, because you've also, you've also looked at this not just as an engineering uh, expert, but also as a kind of a a neuroscience expert, the brain will the brain will adapt, the brain will change. It will. And what's interesting is we we often tend to say, oh golly, you know, my sister or my brother is, for example, much better at math or at learning languages or something like that than I am. And so I just might as well not bother. But even though something might take you longer to learn because you're using different neurocircuitry to get at an understanding, you can actually be more creative than your seemingly super smart brother or sister who's excelling in the subject. And so uh, it's it's how you it's it's a matter of persistence and and realizing that if you can't solve something or understand something the first time you tackle it, it's it's okay. That's yeah. perfectly normal. How interesting. So you really, if, if it doesn't come easily and kind of natural to you and you're working harder at it, you may actually just be creating kind of a stronger base, more connections in the brain, more neurons connecting to different parts of the brain. That's right. And an, an interesting fact from neuroscience is that when you learn something during the day and then you go to sleep at night, it's when you sleep, that's when those neural synoptic, the new synoptic connections are being created. So it's kind of like you go to sleep, you wake up, you have an upgrade. And that's why it's important to space out your learning and do a little bit every day rather than like lump it all in and cram on a Sunday night before a test on Monday or something. Because you can only grow so many synoptic connections of an evening. And if you cram, you've, you've got a weak set of connections. But if you are working every day for a while, you've got a, a much, it's, it's like instead of a, a thin little path, you've got a nice big road 
How uh, interesting. Uh, pattern. So so slow and steady kind of wins the race, it sounds like, um, with creating neuro uh, – what were they called? Neuro-optics? Neural pathways. Pathways, yeah. So, yeah. And we often don't realize that just creating a neural chunk that is a well-practiced pattern that you can easily pop into mind can help it so that you can do better on tests and so forth because you just pull in some of these um, thought patterns. They become very routine for you, and you can uh, you can – connect them with newer ideas. So you've got, if you've practiced a lot, you can pull in the idea you've already practiced a lot with. It's very routine. And then you can do other things with that idea. It's a little bit like driving a car. When you first learn to back up a car, it is crazy. Yeah, it's hard. you're, You're looking all over. Should I look in the mirror? Should I look here? Where should I go? But once you've learned to back up a car, all you have to do is think, back, I'm backing up a car, and, or I'm going to back up, and then off you go. You're backing up, you're talking to your friends, you're looking, you're maybe listening to the radio here, Yeah. and it's easy to do because you practice so much with it. So that's sometimes not emphasized enough in, um, in the way teachers uh, teach about uh, how to learn material. So like learning, uh, and I, you know, it's really fascinating because I've seen it in my own career be- because I have to constantly create new content for TV or radio. Um, what I realize is that I, I every week I'm kind of learning a new chunk, but the chunk then fits into my other chunks that I've learned over time, and it starts to slowly build this really profound set of content, of information. Do, do we, do you think we spend enough time learning, Barbara, every day? I mean, are we all in a process of learning like we need to be? Well, the answer to that, that's a really good question. I think it depends a lot because it's almost like learning is analogous to exercise. Some exercise is really good and really healthy for you. Very little exercise, not so good. Yeah. Similarly, learning, if you have a, a, a lot of learning, it can actually, it can burn you out. Yeah, exhaust you. But if you have too little learning, then that, that learning does a lot of beneficial things for your brain and for your body as well. It helps you to be sort of mentally nimble and flexible, and uh, so you don't turn into one of those older people who's kind of set in their ways and a little bit of curmudgeon and so forth. It leaves you more more open and and able to integrate new ideas, and, and also it helps you to be more fun to be around because you just know more interesting things. Yeah. And then I guess, so if you kind of take the learning and look at it as more of a lifestyle approach than just something we did when we were younger, this has got to be, learning should be part of your day-to-day. That's right. And particularly nowadays, because we have so much that is going on with um, artificial intelligence that's kind of taking over and and making substantive differences in 
all sorts of industries. And it's not just being um, automatic cars and, and taking over fast food and so forth. It's going to make differences if you're in law, if you're in medicine, if you're an engineer. So you you have to be learning all the time, no matter what you're in. And so it's it's very um, beneficial career-wise to have a sort of learning lifestyle where you you integrate some form of learning into your day-to-day activities. And of course, that is really really easy now with with new online ways of learning. And most companies, it seems like, would be okay. Many even offer you access to these learning you know, systems or to learning organizations that develop training like yours. And, and so you're saying integrate into part of your professional world some form of continuous improvement, some, some form of learning. That's right. Um, let's say, so for example, the I, I teach several courses um, in conjunction with a company named Coursera, and one is offered through the University of California, San Diego, and the second through McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And these these courses are solidly research-based courses that teach you how to learn effectively and how to handle changes that are going on in your career so you can avoid ruts and so forth. But you can learn virtually anything through these kinds of online courses. If you if you need Python of programming skills, you can find a great Python course. Hmm. You can find uh, good uh, business courses and, and just all sorts of great Great materials. Yeah. In fact, let's do this. Let's take a break and come back, Barbara. I want you to continue teaching us what we can do professionally to um, to be able to to know kind of where to redirect our new if we're, if we're starting a new career. If we feel like it's time to somehow inject life back into our existing career, how do we do that? Uh, along with these courses, how do we know which direction to take our lives? Stick with us. We're speaking with Dr. Barbara Oakley. Um, about her book, Mind Shift, Break Through the Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential. Great, uh, great insights on how to be a better person. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel like your uh, professional life has become stagnant? Have you uh, Has your progress halted? Well, it may be time to retrain and to retrain your brain and see the world maybe in a whole different light. Joining us to help us through that is Dr. Barbara Oakley. She's a, a professor of engineering at Oakley University in Rochester, Michigan, and also a visiting scholar at the University of California, San Diego. She also has a, a course on Coursera. Um, which is innovation instructor, and she she helps people um, learn how to how to basically learn and how to evaluate your learning lifestyle and create a learning lifestyle. She also is the author of the book Mind Shift: Break Through the Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential. Doctor Oakley, thank you again for being with us. 
Oh, it's so nice to be here, Matt. Thank you. This is, um, I think it's so important. I mean, it was even last night I was talking to my 76-year-old mother who, I mean, it actually was mind-boggling how well she could run her phone considering she's 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 learning at age 76 about how to put up new wallpaper on her phone. And I just sat there and I thought it really is a day and an age where there is no end to learning. You can now do it from the comforts of your own home, which should bring excitement, except I guess a lot of people don't know where to begin, Barbara. Where do we begin in knowing how to rethink and shift our our life? Well, let's see. I can't help but recommend a website called classcentral.com, and that has a wonderful review of all the online, or pretty much all the online courses that are available. So you can go and look by subject matter and see what's available from all the big course providers. I do have a, a sort of a uh, preference in that I really like the the courses that are provided by a an outfit called Coursera, and they work with many of the world's about 150 of the world's leading educational institutions like Yale and Princeton and so forth. And the nice thing about these courses is, well, you can uh, you can be pretty sure that they're high quality. They're not someone who's just sort of coming up with something that's not research-based and so forth. They're very high um, level of academic rigor at the same time that they're they're often just really fun and interesting and fascinating. So that's a class central, I think, is a really good way to start, and particularly focusing on Coursera's courses. Um, my my two courses are. Um, I teach with Tern Sanowski. He's the Francis Crick Professor at the Salk Institute, and they are learning how to learn, which is that's pretty much a, a a great starter course for anyone who wants to retool their life yeah. and and learn something new, no matter what age they are. And the second is Mind Shift, um, and of course, my book is about exactly that as uh, as well. And the book goes deeper into well, I got to travel all over the world to meet really cool learners who have made significant changes in their lives, things they thought they could never do. And just reading about these kinds of of inspirational stories can give you a lot of ideas. It's always hard to to guide someone about how they could or should change, in part because they're – there's so many different ways you can go, and often you can go, you can change much more than you ever think you can. You can, you, you can kind of dream big, and uh, so at any rate, in the book, I was able to, well, for the book, I met many of the the world's leading neuroscientists and or some of them, and and discussed what they're doing, um, and how their research provides insight onto how we can learn more effectively even as we grow, you know, pretty old. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the most beneficial things we can do to help keep our 
our sharpness, even in our 90s, is to play action-style video games. Really? Action-style oh. video games help keep you fresh. Isn't that funny? That's it's great. stuff we tell kids, no, no, don't huh? do that. And, uh, but, and they also improve your eyesight, uh, even, so that you can read pill bottles better. You, you can see that deer that's just jumping out of the, the edge of the road uh, yeah. and react more quickly. So that's a, a, a great thing uh, to do is, is playing action video games. In fact, some of the first ones are going up for potential FDA approval. Really? So can, you, can you imagine that? You so know, it's a treatment is, process, some kind of a treatment. Yes. So <laughs> your brain is kind of like getting a little, you know, lax with age and so forth. Well, they could prescribe you a video game. And uh, How great is that? I mean, this is an interesting – this is where maybe grandkids could come in and play with grandma and grandpa, teach them how to play. Exactly. How neat right. would that be? And it's actually – it's fun, too, because you get to interact together, and if you play some of these video games, you'll see just how how much sort of team spirit there yeah. actually is in them. And it, it, it's, a, it's something that could be really fun to do as a family. I love that idea, too. And boy, what a generational skip where the parents that complain about the kids playing too much and the grandparents that need more of that play... What a what a great combination. <laughs> that it and it what's fun too is the kids can kind of feel like, well, I've got something to contribute right. uh instead of the other way around as it often is. Yeah, so true. What um because I guess what you're saying to us, Barbara, is there's so many options out there and opportunities. If I'm somebody, let's say I'm working in a sales force and I'm just getting burnt out. I'm tired of selling what I what I do every day. But I could go home at night and maybe just slowly open up a course on one of these sites, Class Central or Coursera or wherever, and start learning. If I've always wanted to be a photographer, I could go start taking photography classes or um, you know learning how to work you know um, and 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 color the pictures and manage the pictures better in some software program. You're just saying start doing what you're passionate about. Do it on the side. Do it slowly. Let it grow slowly in you. And then, I guess, see where it takes you. You are so right. And I love how you use that word slowly. I think one of the biggest challenges I had initially when I just thought I couldn't learn math and science when I was growing up was I always thought, gosh, if I just sit down and try to solve this problem and I can't solve it or understand this concept, that I must be stupid, yeah. uh, that I have no talent for math. And that's, that's actually not true at all. That's your brain oftentimes needs to be presented with the material and then you have to back away, do something different, take a break or whatever, and come back and then it will click. And this is a kind of a slower process. But if you set things up 
so you can take your time as you're learning, which you can with the online learning materials, you can learn virtually anything, and especially things that you're really passionate about. There's just so much. Oh, photography courses, there's some fantastic material out there. Hmm. I um, I got my PhD program. I mean, I got my PhD doing a program where you were supposed to learn to be a scholar, so learn to think kind of in a in uh, the scientific methodology and and, um, think kind of in a scholarly way, but also as a practitioner, where simultaneously I was supposed to be practicing it. What what are the benefits of being a a learner, practitioner, and practicing and learning and learning and and doing this over time? I mean, one thing you mentioned earlier is that as I learn a skill, I, I can then add to that skill the next week and then keep adding and adding and adding um, so it becomes it becomes you know just a basis of upon which I will grow everything else. What are other benefits of learning and practicing and learning and practicing? Well, that is really you put your finger exactly on what it takes to truly learn the material. You need to be actively engaging, actively doing something. For example, in my engineering classes. Uh, I had a student who came up and he was like, oh, I'm doing so terrible. It's because I I can't really understand you very well. Um, He he spoke English as an additional language. And it turns out he understood me really well and he actually spoke English very well. His real challenge was he didn't know to actively grapple with material. So when I'd say, uh, stop now and uh, in a video and work the work this problem yourself. He'd say, "Ah, I got it," and he'd skip right over it. Mm. And once we figured this problem out in his learning, that he was he was just kind of thinking he got it and he understood it and he wasn't actively doing it. Then all of a sudden, his grades just bumped right up. Mm. So actively involving yourself with the materials, it's amazing what you can learn. Um, online, for example, the, I believe it was the um, gold medal winner in javelin throw in the most recent Olympics. He couldn't afford to go to any of the, you know, the meets overseas or anything. He was, he was from a disadvantaged background, so he just watched YouTube videos huh. and taught himself the great techniques and ended up winning. Unbelievable. The gold medal. So what what is available now for you to learn from, if you're willing to actively engage with it, is unbelievable. That's so great. What a great story. Um, as we wrap up, talk about what learning does to us for our health. I mean, learning makes us happier, doesn't it? Growing and learning and developing makes us happier. You also said it makes us it makes us less of a curmudgeon. We're actually more adaptable. We're fun to be around. But does it really impact our health? It does. There's evidence that when you when you for example, if you read a book for three hours or so a week, you your lifespan is extended. You know, in the big study that they did, it looks like it extends your life for around three years Holy on cow. average. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. But what learning does is it, you have new neurons being born every day in your hippocampus. But if you're not learning anything new, it's like there's no trellis there, so the vines just die. Hmm. But if you're learning new things, then the new neurons have something to 
link onto, and they they grow and they thrive. So what learning does is it gives you this sort of um, neural reserve of, of extra neurons and extra synoptic connections that helps to, as you age and you lose some of those connections, well, you've got new ones coming on board. And so it helps it helps so that you maintain your, your smartness and your mental acuity and you're not just kind of getting, you know, kind of losing it a little bit as you get older, but instead you're maintaining everything that you had and even more. Mm, great, great, uh, great insight. Well, Barbara, thank you for your time, your great work um, on helping us create that mind shift and have that lifelong learning. Mind Shift is the name of her book, Break Through the Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential. Just Google Barbara Oakley and you can, you'll be able to get to her, her classes, those trainings that she's, she's designed um, to help you become a lifelong learner. Wonderful insight, folks. Helping you be the good in the world. And a lot of times it just takes some learning and a, a consistent path of, of uh, learning. Something, you, some, something you're interested in anyway, right? We'll take a break. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, lots of ways to find passion and excitement in your life. One way, I guess, is some continuous learning. But Terry might Terry brings up the idea that maybe it's just having a really good name. Just having a good name or a name. Any name. It's good. This guy's name's Joe McGrath. McGrath. He got on Facebook last week, and there was uh, some notification he had about a free trip to Spain. Now, if yeah. you jump on Facebook and there's a little message saying, hey, free trip to Spain, what do you think that is? Uh, it's a ploy to get you to buy some direct sell. Thing. Yeah, or some someone trying to steal your personal information or something. It says, but the 21-year-old Manchester, England resident thought it sounded like a hoax, but he said the invitation kept replaying in his head, and soon he found himself on the phone with a man who sounded quite ingenious. A group had planned a surprise trip to uh, Majorca for a friend's yeah. 30th birthday. Is it an island or... I think it is. I think it is. And the man sounded quite genuine. They planned this trip for the guy's 30th birthday, but their friend Joe McGrath wasn't able to go. So, and they didn't want to, you know, have to get back the plane ticket or hotel room that was already in his name, go to, let it go to waste. So they messaged 15 other Joe McGraths on Facebook, and only one was stupid enough to reply, and he goes, that was me. So, I'd, I'd love to go. So he went on this trip with perfect strangers. He goes, but the fake fake Joe, as the birthday group reportedly took to calling him, talked it over with his uh, girlfriend and boss and decided to take the leap and enjoy the three-day trip, according to the local newspaper. How cool for him. He scored. So now when he's back, he says he has 10 friends from Bristol, a city about three hours south of him, where an absolutely lovely group of people, and he's planning to invite them to Manchester for a thank you night out. Holy cow. That's great. It's It's good to have. It's good to have friends, and it's good to have the right name. Yeah. And with the right name, maybe you'll just go meet a whole new group of friends. Now, what happens if they don't need the other McGrath? Maybe huh? they don't need him anymore. Well, he's fake Joe. The other yeah. guy's real Joe. Yeah. Mm. See how this works? Joe, 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 Maybe don't do that. We're treading water on that one. That's kind of awkward. Okay, folks, we'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. One more hour straight ahead.
Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy uh, tax day. Today's the day, folks. You got to get them in. Got to get them in today or, uh, you know, you don't have to, of course. You could file for your extension. You could file for your extension. Is that what you do? Yeah, I do every time. And got to get it in. Still got to get your extension in. <sighs> Did you just forget about it or? No. You just. You just can't bother to I, worry about it? I got to get a lot of numbers in and sometimes it takes the numbers a while to get in. But you did yours. You got them in in time. Barely. I got my extension in. If you start earlier, would it help to finish? Well, but you've got business numbers that they close only a few months ago, and it gets more complicated than that. So we just file a little extension. Okay. So it's a fun thing. It's a really fun thing for everybody involved. <laughs> I don't think it is. Um, yeah. And so... Here's the deal. Of course, you got to file your taxes, right? I mean, you don't want to you don't want to make a mistake like that. That would just get you. It's not even just tax day, by the way. It's also National Animal Crackers Day. This is this is the fun day when you get to celebrate those cute little animal crackers by like I don't know, biting off their head, perhaps, maybe eating the nose off the elephant or the leg off the bear. I think we established this with the Easter Bunny that you should bite off their face first. Well, that's if you don't want them to look at you while you're eating the rest of them. Because that's just awkward. I like to save the face. <laughs> that's you want them to remember you yeah. for as long as possible. I love animal crackers, but not like there's some there's some cheap ones that taste like um, cardboard, and then there's some really good ones that are just nice and sugary, yummy yum yums. Hmm. Not the cardboard ones. They're no good. The cardboard ones in the cardboard box you think taste like cardboard? They taste like the box. You may as well just eat the box hmm. and the plastic wrapping inside. Mm. Animal Cracker Day. Celebrate it, folks. Grab your kids some animal crackers and then teach them how to appropriately eat those bad boys. And nothing better than the little chocolate-covered ones. Mm. Got to love it. Good stuff. Hey, uh, by the way, today is also we're going to be talking about journalism. And are there such a thing as nonpartisan journalists anymore? And can it happen? And what is what is President Trump's election done to journalism? It may have very well, like, neutralized the impact of journalism. Because for all the partisan journalists, they're just doing more of the same. But they can't claim, they can't cry partisanship because they are partisans. And for this, the those that used to think they were nonpartisans... They can't say anything because anything they say either seems – it seems partisan. So if you're – you claim you're nonpartisan as yeah. a journalist, but no one believes you. Right. Are you nonpartisan? This is the whole tree in the this, forest. This is the deal, yeah. It, and the problem is, is is partisan or nonpartisan journalism the future? What is the ideal way to do this? And one of the problems is now the market is driving journalism. Hmm. For years, mar- the, the markets – people never made money make really being journalists – Maybe you and could ask you this can. guy, too, if having a degree in communication with an emphasis in broadcast journalism has any value anymore. Great, or great if it question. ever did. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's my bachelor's degree is that, and it obviously doesn't. That's your bachelor's degree? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's yeah. mine too. See where it got us? Yeah. Nowhere. But happy about it. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Never been more happy. So we'll get into all that fun about journalism. Um, plus, of course, some headlines. And uh, in uh, later in the show, I, I guess I, ha- I actually have a call with someone from the IRS. Ooh. Yeah. You're going to handle that on the air? Not in this show. Not in the first hour. The second hour of the show... Well, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm. I'm I mean, just... don't you normally set an appointment? You can maybe. Well, it's today's the day. It's got to be done, and the this guy. This is the he, only time. The tax guy's got some questions. The IRS right. guy's right. got a few questions to ask me. Okay. Just about some of my filings. Just maybe you'd... show's done at noon Eastern. You could just schedule it for that time. But well, yeah, but I kind of felt like I I owe it to the people, the peeps. Okay. Well. The listeners. So some people don't want their tax returns public, but you're okay with that. You have nothing to hide. I've got nothing to hide. Okay. I mean, I think I, I did everything. I, I, I don't get me wrong. I used the extent of the law possible. I pushed it. But <laughs> what I mean, does an extension be, get you? Because only, f- only dumb people, isn't this what Trump said? Only dumb people pay taxes. Well, by the way, Bloomberg is reporting this morning that 4 million fewer people had filed their returns by April 7th than last year. Really? We got a bunch of real dummies. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I see. So those are the smart people. So there might, aren't finally. there might be a rush. Yeah. We might have that, that, that wonderful TV guy standing out in front of the post office oh. tonight. Shikshamway? Standing, they do that every year. Well, they used to. Now with all the online filing, people don't we have should to do sh- that as We much. should send Shik to, to go office? stand to, by a post office box. Except a lot of people now just are yeah. e-filing, right? So yeah, maybe we mean. could just have him stand by a computer. A computer. Oh, there it goes. I mean, oh, Click. Bing. <laughs> Bing. Bing. You've got mail. We'll get to all that excitement, folks. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country we should be worrying about? Day after a man posted a video on Facebook of himself allegedly killing an elderly man, the social media company has said it must do more to prevent gruesome videos. On Sunday, Facebook user Steve Stevens allegedly shot and killed a stranger before uploading the video to Facebook, where it remained online for hours. Stevens is still at large, believed to be armed. Facebook is holding their F8 Developers Conference Uh, today and tomorrow in San Jose, just by coincidence. So, of course, the media flocked there, and a spokesperson had some difficult questions to answer on Monday. Why can't Facebook take down quickly video of a murder when it's posted on Facebook? Unfortunately, I can't comment on that. We want to be able to show the new technologies across things like Messenger, Oculus, uh, virtual reality, uh, augmented realities. You've had live killings on Facebook Live. Unfortunately, I can't comment on that. Hmm? So we want to talk about virtual reality. But you've had murders. Eh, we can't talk about that. We yeah. have some great new products and features coming out, yeah. though. That will also eventually in the future be able to show more murders? Come on. Yeah, Facebook took another shot at addressing the situation. Uh, we know we need to do better. Justin uh, Ospolsky, the vice president of global operations of Facebook, said in a statement Monday, we disabled the suspect's account within 23 minutes of receiving its first report about the murder video and two hours after receiving any report of any kind. Initially, they said that this type of content is unacceptable. Yeah. Content being murder videos. Yeah. Great. So, <laughs> so stop it, Facebook. It's just uh, her talking uh. about like Messenger and 
virtual reality when he's asking her about murder videos. Yeah, sorry, we can't. I mean, yeah, you can't spin yeah. that story. You just got to say, yeah, we're so sorry. The look on her victims. face was funny too. She's like, uh, we can't really. It's actually comment. a really interesting point. Always address what's being asked. Like, yeah. sorry, you know what? We feel sorry for the victims. Our hearts go out with them, and we're we're not. We're, we can't comment on on that not, story. Right not now. the Oculus yeah. Rift or whatever. Don't start going off on your product. Georgia's sixth congressional district goes to the polls to, today to vote for a replacement for Representative Tom Price, who now serves as the Health and Human Services Secretary. Leading the crowded uh, race is a heavily funded Democrat, John Osloff, who is averaging about forty eight percent of the polls, with the next highest polling candidate, Karen Handel, a Republican, at about eighteen percent. So the mm. Democrat taking this Republican. Tom Price usually won that by yeah. 20 points. Now that was Newt Gingrich's seat. That yeah. was Tom Price's seat. So now this guy's got 48% when it comes to the, the vote so far. The closest Republican, 18%. He The uh, the Democrat will need more than 50% of the vote if he's to avoid a June 20th runoff election. Yeah, he's right now, what is he, 46 48, Oh, yeah. 48, yeah. Uh, Critical voting machines were reported stolen in Georgia just one day before the state special congressional uh, Great. election. The, uh, what is it, the uh, Secretary of State there is saying that uh, we've opened an investigation. We're taking steps to ensure it has no effect on the election. I'm confident that the results will not be compromised. Oh, my heavens. So, yeah, voting machines disappeared in Georgia. Arkansas Supreme Court Monday afternoon ordered a stay of execution for Don Davis and Bruce Ward. Two inmates scheduled to be executed on uh, they were scheduled to be executed Monday as part of the execution palooza in Arkansas. Yeah. As we're trying to get this done in a week. Davis and Ward, uh, two of six Arkansas inmates scheduled for execution over this 11-day period. U.S. Supreme Court early this morning rejected a request by the state of Arkansas to execute one of the condemned men scheduled to die before the end of April. The state is racing against time because the expiration what, what of are drugs. The, what are the that. courts – why are the courts – what are they saying? Well, the courts are saying there's some mental health issues that have not been addressed. Oh, is it just in the one? Or yeah. Well, it's in the one, but by doing the one, it's kind of stopping Slowing down the, the whole process. And there's also the initial judge who stopped it on Friday. Right. He apparently made his ruling and then walked out of the courtroom, joined the protest out in front of the court by laying down on a cot, acting as oh, a yeah, feature. Oh, yeah, saw that. So he's been removed from any death penalty cases in the future. It's just chaos as they're trying to wow. rush. yeah. To execute people. Probably the whole idea of rushing to execute people is It throws people off, here. yeah. President Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, is reportedly guiding a Chinese billionaire on how to profit from Trump's promised $1 trillion infrastructure plan. Inside <laughs> of the Financial Times, Manafort's spokesman denies the report. So, Wow. More with Manafort. And finally, when Harvey Kenyon Carnes was nervous at the, U- was nervous at the U.S. Embassy in London as he was questioned about possible terrorist activities is unclear but his grandfather says tells the guardian that harvey harvey was a good was good as gold and didn't cry once Mm. which is surprising as harvey's a three-month-old britain infant caught up in what grandpa paul kenyon calls a genuine mistake that led to more than three thousand seven hundred dollars in extra costs to make a florida vacation happen after harvey's travel papers didn't show up in time it all started when the elder Kenyon, the grandpa, was preparing for his extended family's trip from the U.K. to Orlando and filling out electronic system for travel authorization forms, which the Telegraph explains are necessary if one is traveling to the U.S. under a visa waiver program. But after filling out five forms for himself and other family members, 
The grandpa mistakenly checked yes for the question on Harvey's form. No, Harvey's a three-month-old infant. Yeah. That said, do you seek to engage in or have you ever engaged in terrorist activities, espionage, sabotage, or genocide? <laughs> yes on that one. Yes. The family Regularly. Had to, the family had to cart Harvey, the three-month-old, on a 10-hour trip from his home in Cheshire to the London Embassy, where he was apparently cleared of all terrorist ties. Oh. Though, as his grandpa says, he has sabotaged quite a few diapers in his time. <laughs> so because they made the mistake, the, the embassy, uh, they said, you must bring him in. The three-month-old baby must be present so we can verify who oh, he is. Oh, my word. So that he's not a terrorist. They did a pat-down, yeah. a <laughs> change... An interview away from his parents. And then they sent him off with a warm bottle. Unbelievable. Yeah. It makes you take these things seriously, right? You got to, you well, got to, I mean, you, it's a mistake, but that cost him the other side 20 hours the, of travel. There's a question on, on entry documents to our country that says, do you seek to engage in terrorism, espionage, sabotage, or genocide? Like someone's going to check yes. Yeah. I, I, who, who has checked yes? The baby. Just the Apparently baby. This, yeah, so it's kind of Unbelievable. Dumb. Wow. Okay. The so baby does that. have the shifty eyes, though. Oh, you you got to watch out for the shifty eyes. You know what? Eyes. Never trust a baby that can't look you in the eye. That's what my grandma used to tell me. They're up to something. They're up to something. Do you hear about um, the uh, Catherine Switzer, the first female Boston marathoner 50 years ago? She re-ran the race yesterday. And 50 years ago, she was she, people were like trying to beat her up in the middle of the race because women shouldn't be running. The race organizer got in a car, found her on the course, got out of the car, chased her down, tried to pull her she had bib off, bib off, so she wasn't official because yeah. women weren't supposed to run. Women, well, because, women don't run back then because you're sabotaging. Yeah, it would it would hurt them in a uh, a medical sense. <laughs> you know, running was just it was wrong for women yeah. and all this. You need to be having more children. Shouldn't you be having a child right now? No, I'm running the marathon. Shouldn't you be baking a quiche? Oh, well, it was up until it's sad. What 2010 that Olympic downhill long jump, the skiing long yeah. jump. They there was no women could not compete. There was no women event for that because the honest belief was that it would mess up your reproductive organs if you compete land in the long heart. jump. If you land. And they're like, well, <laughs> well, it's actually the, it's actually the not landing that really messes well, yeah, it up. Yeah, but they're, they're just and that was in 2010. So I mean, the the idea that these ideas continue to persist is kind of uh, unbelievable. Maybe a commentary on. Well, congratulations things. to her and way to go back and make everybody realize that was 50 years ago. See, she, I I think my wife would want to do the long jump right now because she's ready to get this baby out. Yeah, anything. She would love anything to have gravity. Just <laughs> so the woman running the the marathon. Yeah. when she ran, she had several friends with her, mm-hmm. male friends. One was a boyfriend. One is a boyfriend, and the, uh, she said her boyfriend grabbed this guy from the race organization committee. Took him out. And grabbed him and threw him down. Like get away from us! And she kept running. So it's pretty cool. She she got registered by using her initials. Oh, did of her she name. now? Like, let's say if it was like J.K., whatever. Yeah, her, her name, her name was. was Catherine Switzer, so probably K, name J. Switzer. Yeah, so she used her initials and they went, okay, sure. And they signed sure. her up. Another man. You would never expect a female right. 50 years ago to sneak into the Boston Marathon. And then, I mean, a lot of the people injured in the Boston Marathon bombing were women. Mm-hmm. Crazy. 
cool. see, you see the time on the the winner for the? I just saw the female no, time. What it was, was like f- two hours and twenty one minutes or something Holy for the women. Twenty six point two miles in two hours and twenty yeah. minutes. <sighs> I don't know that I could drive it that fast. I mean, I get distracted and have to stop for a drink. Ah, congratulations to everybody that finished the Boston Marathon. What a what a feat that is. And for the rest of us that just look at all those people running marathons and think, why? Why do you do that? I mean, I get it, but nobody looks more miserable than a marathoner. You know, it just it just looks miserable. But congrats to all that can do such a thing. Powerful. We will take a break when we come back. We're going to be taking on journalism and find out is it the end of nonpartisan journalism? Is it the end of partisan journalism? Uh, crazy, crazy things happening uh, since President Trump has been running. It's upending journalism as we know it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This past election has caused journalists uh, to look at their profession to determine what the future of journalism really is. Whether a nonpartisan journalist fact-checked the president they chose to be labeled as part of the liberal media or to intentionally leave the fact unchecked. What are you supposed to do? Do you leave it unchecked and just let the president say what he wants? Do you check the president and then be labeled as a, you know, a partisan journalist? Did this past election cycle have any nonpartisan media coverage? Does nonpartisan journalism have a future in our modern-day political world? Well, here to answer some of these questions is Professor Justin Buechler. He's a professor of political science at Case Western University and uh, is, is going to help us sort through some of this. Justin, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. So, boy, uh, as a journalism student, now uh, – 30 years into a profession here. Talk to me. Uh, it seems like this journalistic ethic of being nonpartisan is it's it's really up in the air now. Are we now questioning whether partisan or nonpartisan journalism has a future? Are we to that point? Um, I think we are. I mean, this is this is a difficult environment. Um and there are a couple of problems. I think it's it's the relationship between two issues. Uh, we have two things going on simultaneously. There is a complicated media environment that consists of journalists who try to be nonpartisan and try to be uh, objective about how they cover politics, trying to coexist with journalists who are more opinion-based. And we have a combination of that and really asymmetric politics. The complicated media environment of nonpartisan journalists and opinion-based journalists would work a little bit better if we had symmetric politics where the parties were sort of equally ideologically extreme and both followed the same rules. But that's really been breaking down and broke down a lot in, in the 2016 election with Trump and fact-checking, as you said, where Trump would simply say uh, things that just weren't true a lot, and journalists had to figure out how they would deal with somebody who just sort of lies on an unprecedented scale. And and when you say 
lies. I mean, again, every partisan out there, everybody listening that is pro-Trump or against Trump, um, tell, tell us – because there are now organizations that do nothing in a nonpartisan way usually it seems like to, but to try to determine if what they're saying is factually correct. So what – when you say lying, that's because PolitiFact or other organizations – and may, what are some other names of these organizations that are checking the truth of what's being said? Well, uh, every newspaper that has a fact-checking operation will uh, sort of have their own little system. So they will count up. I think Washington Post counts up Pinocchios or something. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head which one has Pinocchios. I think that one's Washington Post. Somebody can look that up uh, and fact-check me on that, I guess. Um, but everybody has their own little operation. But I mean, the problem is there there is such a thing as objective reality. And uh, every proper uh, media organization is supposed to engage in some sort of fact checking and how they write their stories. Um, and a lot of uh, media organizations have been struggling with how to deal with a candidate who will simply say things uh, that. Uh, are are just blatantly false. Mm. By the way, you uh, you were right, Justin. It is uh, it is the post that uh, okay. that, that so goes with I Pinocchio's, that and that's that's the okay. that's the problem you're saying is be, if if Hillary Clinton uh, was had was lying to the degree that Donald Trump was lying, then there would be parity and symmetry, and then. All the media could beat up either side, and it wouldn't seem like anyone's being favored. But when when there's not the parody, you're saying Donald, like for example, Donald Trump lying a lot more. Then it looks like everybody is partisan against Donald Trump. Well, and the problem then is from a voter's perspective, and that's really how I've been thinking about this in my research. So if you think about this strategically from a voter's perspective, where this gets muddled is. It's easy for those of us who are very politically aware and willing to sort of check our own internal biases to hear a statement about uh, the Chinese created global warming as a hoax. And it's easy for somebody like me to recognize very quickly that that is nonsense. Um, but if you are not really politically aware and you hear that statement or hear Donald Trump in a debate deny that he ever made that claim, uh, what do you do with those kinds of statements? Mm. So people who are not very politically aware, if somebody accuses Donald Trump of lying and then Donald Trump says, no, you're fake news, what do you do with that? One of two things is the, is the case. Either uh, both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are equally dishonest, and the party system is kind of symmetric, or the journalist accusing Donald Trump of lying is just a shill for the Democratic Party. And since there are a lot of accusations, in particular of liberal media bias, it's relatively easy for a voter who doesn't have a lot of prior political knowledge and political sophistication to conclude that it's just liberal media bias and discount the accusation of lying. And in fact, it's actually logical to do that. And that's where a lot of my research has gone is thinking through 
uh, what are called signaling models about how that works. And if you have a political environment that is kind of asymmetric, where one candidate just lies more than the other, as, for example, Donald Trump lying more than Hillary Clinton, which he did objectively, and you combine that with a complex media environment, it actually becomes logical for voters to just discount the the commentary about Donald Trump lying. And that actually makes it irrational for journalists to mm. even try to yeah. call out Trump's lies. Well, then, then, yeah, then it's then it so it, it doesn't make any sense to try to call it out. But then to not call it out, they're shirking their duty. So they're yeah, they're in a catch twenty two, right? So so is are we right. are we at a stage when, I mean, in a way that's super scary because if yeah. if we're not able to call out people and and like show what facts are without always being called, you know, partisan, then boy, what? How, who is going to be watching the kitchen? Who's going to be taking care of the truth tellers and making sure people are telling uh, truth? Yeah, I think that's a big problem, and I don't know that there, that there is an easy way out, um, or at least I haven't seen one. I mean, the, 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 the basic core problem is that if somebody points out when Trump is lying, which he continues to do in, in really flagrant ways, it's rational for a voter who is not particularly well-informed to discount journalistic criticism of, of that. And the fact that it is rational for voters to do that takes away journalistic incentives to, to call him out. And, and I, 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 I don't see a clear way out. Hmm. Um, the, 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 the journalistic system just hasn't figured out a way to handle somebody who lies this much and couldn't it, uh, it, it yeah couldn't it just be a, a i mean it only i mean i to me it's a it's an enormous problem and i one thing you brought up too is truth telling is one thing and it really is almost like president trump has his own list of facts and but the facts are they're they're not objective they 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 almost can just change with the tide and the facts are so changing so much that we can't always keep up with them which is what the journalists are trying to do is state well no you said this this is this here's the real fact but another point of it is is, is ideology in a way that usually we have candidates that are so ideologically extreme and and usually paired in in, in ideology that that we we've always had the balance but with president trump there really there kind of isn't a balance there isn't an ideology so which which is harder do you think on the journalists the lack of ideology or the lack of truth um i think they're both difficult um i i ideology has been difficult for journalists because uh if you look at Congress. Uh, Congress is becoming Congress is becoming much more ideologically polarized. Right. This has been a trend that's been going on for decades. Um, for a while, it was relatively easy for journalists to cover, but it got a little bit more difficult starting in the late 1990s and early 2000s because it started to become asymmetric. 
So if you look at the scores that we use in political science to study uh, congressional ideology, we use a score called a nominate score, which is developed by Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal. And if you look at those types of scores in Congress based on congressional voting behavior, the Republican Party has moved more to the ideological more to the ideological extreme than the Democratic Party. And as a result of that, you will see things like uh, more use of uh, sort of extreme tactics hmm. on the Republican side. So, for example, threatening a debt ceiling breach in order yeah. to shutting down government. Debt. Yeah, government shutdowns, that, that type of thing, which, which – uh, which the Republican Party has used more than the Democratic Party. And that's been difficult for Republican or for journalists to cover. And that was actually the start of this project uh, because I started thinking about how journalists are supposed to cover bargaining, bargaining situations when one party demands asymmetric concessions. Um, and that, that in itself is, dif- is difficult, even though it is really about ideology rather than truth. But I actually think that it's the same fundamental problem, because anytime you have one party that is breaking the norms more than the other, it creates the same difficulty for Mm. journalists, because they don't have a way to say, this situation is not symmetric. Journalists have been trying to signal to voters that they are nonpartisan by uh, following a norm, which is both parties are the same. They're mirror images. They're equally extreme, equally guilty of all problems. Hmm. And journalists will then wind wind up looking biased anytime they break that norm. So anytime a journalist says, this party is breaking the rules, the other one is not, they look biased. And they do that anytime they say this party is more extreme, this party is using worse bargaining tactics, this party is lying. I think it's actually the same basic fundamental problem. And it comes down to the fact that we have this journalistic norm of saying both sides do it. Oh, interesting. And both sides yeah. don't always do it. I think it's that norm which constrains journalists in all contexts, which is the basic problem. So when um, – and we'll have to – we'll take a break and come back and address this, Justin. But so, so when President Trump sits there and talks about the media bias, in a way the bias may be perceived as real. But some of that is because the Republican Congress, the Republican Party is is more unilaterally breaking rules than um, than the Democratic party maybe is because we're we there's there's a they the republican party may be demanding more asymmetric concessions as you said interesting interesting insight so it's weird because it it may be what makes us all resonate or many people resonate with the fact that there is a bias but the bias is also a reality of a bias that's going on with the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party. Interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the journey trying to understand partisanship and journalism. Is there a future? What is the future for journalists? Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Justin Buechler. He is uh, he is a professor of political science at Case Western University. He studies elections, political parties, and Congress. He has a book that he released in 2011, Hiring and Firing Public Officials, Rethinking the Purpose of Elections. And today he's talking to us about an article he wrote, Does Nonpartisan Journalism Have a Future? Justin, again, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. You you bring up such great points. And as we've been talking about it during the break, it really is um, th- there's this. So the, the nonpartisan media, as you're teaching us, their goal has been to, to show that every that they want to treat both parties equally, that both parties are equally uh, problematic, have equal um, trust issues, have all these things. And, and they're supposed to be this parody. Um, but I guess. One of the dilemmas we're running into and some of the data you're showing is there that maybe the Republican Party is a little more extreme um, in demanding asymmetric concessions was was your terms. And um, so but then as we try to treat them as as equals as a journalist. So it's not like we can sit and report, OK, Donald Trump just made a an incomplete statement here. This statement is not actually factually true. And then everyone else is wondering, well, why don't you ever say that about the Democrats? Democrats say things that are not true as well. But if you have a president that's doing it five or six or seven times to one, you can't keep up with it. I, yeah, that's right. And that's the basic problem. So, I mean, if you look, for example, at some of the, some statements that Hillary Clinton made, I mean, she she lied a yeah. bunch of times. and. Uh, there were there were some some big ones like uh, uh, landing a helicopter under gunfire. Right. That was one of the ones that got a lot of attention. And as soon as she was called on that statement, she stopped making it. So uh, that was one of the things that got her a pants on fire rating from PolitiFact. And uh, then it just got dropped from her repertoire because that I, that was sort of the same type of statement that uh, got uh, I think was was it Brian Williams I yeah. momentarily forget yeah it was they Brian, Brian yeah that got Brian Williams into trouble and but you compare that then to for example Donald Trump who repeatedly asserted that he always opposed the Iraq war, which is just factually untrue. There's a recording of him on the Howard Stern show saying he supported going into Iraq. And no matter how many times that recording was played, he would just deny, deny, Mm. deny. And no matter how many times his lies were debunked, he would keep repeating them. And there were always more of them. And you just, you, you simply could not find symmetry. But if you report that both sides lie equally, you were then being dishonest. Yeah. And, and especially on any issue, right? On any issue, they, they try to create parity, but if parity doesn't exist, you can't force parity and symmetry. Right. And, right. and the problem is if, 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 both, if, one, if one person is more dishonest than the other and you assert that both people are equally dishonest, then you are not being honest. And that's hmm. the problem. Boy, so so then you end up as a journalist deciding, okay, so do I want to even get in that game? Plus, not to mention the fact that if you if you push back on Donald Trump, you may get thrown under the bus and your professionalism called into question, your fake news. And we've seen various cases of that, plus even backlash where he would, you know, say things in meetings that are in uh, 
in events that would even put journalists' lives maybe a little bit in risk or in jeopardy. It, so then what decisions now are the journalists having to make? Um, well, I mean, they have to decide uh, how they handle uh, a, a situation when Trump lies. I mean, they can simply ignore it. I mean, part of the problem is that he lies so often that it's just not possible to fact check everything he says. And even when they deal with a Trump lie, uh, the, the problem is how aggressively do they pursue it? Do they just call it a lie? There are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the word lie. I'm using mm-hmm. it a lot right now. But uh, there are a lot of journalistic outlets that simply want to shy away from the word as though it is somehow too aggressive to use the word lie because it is somehow just so strong uh, that you can't use it because it is impolitic. Um, And every journalistic outlet has to decide – uh, how how far they're willing to go in in, in dealing with that? Um, it, they don't really have any good options right now. Uh, and then we have the basic problem that uh, once they decide that they are going to uh, point out that Trump is lying, they signal bias correctly or incorrectly. And audiences will respond accordingly because any audience member, any any news consumer who is prone to believe Donald Trump for partisan reasons will conclude that that journalistic outlet is biased. Mm. Because if you are a partisan Republican, uh, you you have uh, incentives, psychological incentives to engage in what we call motivated reasoning. And what that means is you have to deal with this cognitive dissonance. It is hard to hold two inconsistent ideas in your head at once. Idea one, Republican Party is good. Idea two, Republican president lies. Holding these two ideas in your head at once is uncomfortable. So one of these ideas has to be sort of pushed out or rationalized away. And the simplest way to deal with that is to say, whatever outlet just told me that the president is lying is fake news. So I'm going to go find another outlet. I'm going to go watch Fox News or read a uh, uh, Republican-leaning news site, Republican blog. Hmm. And then you wind up with uh, the at least the potential for a little bit of polarization in the audiences. Now, this is overstated, according to a lot of the research. Uh, A lot of the people who uh, consume news do so as sort of omnivores. They'll they'll sort of graze from various news sites, whatever crosses their their, uh, 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 news feeds from Facebook or whatever. So it is not the case that people just go to one website. The people who do that are very... uh, they're, they tend to be very hardcore partisans, and they're, they're not the ones who are subject to these kinds of processes. But the basic cognitive process of discounting a news story on the basis of that story conflicting with your predispositions, that's something that we've known about in political science and political psychology for a long time. Well, and is, is, it seems like another issue that's creeping up is – 
Because in my head, I would think, well, okay, we'll cover him less. Just cover the president less. I mean, cover the policies, cover China. You you can cover everything, but just cover the president uh, on each of these issues less, except there's a hankering and a hungering and ratings come by covering President Trump, it seems like. So now then then you're being driven by it almost seems the market to have to cover him to the depth that Um, they cover him. Well, it's not just the market. I mean, he is the center of the political system. Uh, There was an argument during the early days of the campaign about whether or not news organizations should cover him and whether or not uh, they were sort of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of covering him and, and making him into a more viable candidate by covering him. But right now he is the president and uh, he he gets attention uh, not just from uh, the the journalists who consider themselves nonpartisan, but he gets attention regardless of what the nonpartisan journalists do. He will get attention from Fox News and from the other Republican aligned media. That means he's getting attention that creates political stories that must be covered by the nonpartisan journalists anyway. So it's not like they really have that option. Well, do they have the Uh, option? I mean, but it does seem like when he tweets something out that is extreme and is, I mean, I have a hard time believing that in three years they're going to be covering him with the same level of intensity when he tweets out something that is stupid after 500 tweets that were just crazy. It seems like... Well, it depends on the tweet. Yeah. Um... I, it, it really depends on the tweet, because if he tweets out something that has the potential of creating a major international incident, then they're going to have to cover it. And uh, depending on what happens between now and three and a half years from now, it is possible that a Trump tweet will create an international incident. We don't know because we don't know what kinds of uh, actions he's going to take. I mean, we're, we are still in the very early days of his presidency, and it's still difficult to say uh, what kinds of foreign policy decisions he's going to make. Um, I mean, he, he uh, launched a missile strike in Syria. He dropped a, a Moab in Afghanistan. But uh, given that we don't know a long-term strategy that the administration will take in either of those locations. We don't know what kinds of decisions he's going to make, and we don't know what kinds of tweets uh, he might uh, mm. he, he might make, and what kinds of uh, consequences there might be. Yeah, give us a give us a, a forecast. Then, what where do you sense this goes over the next? Two or three years. Where does journalism turn? How how do you end up playing this journalistic dilemma out? I think political science got burned pretty badly with uh, forecasting in the 2016 election. So uh, I'm not sure I want to make a forecast on that. <laughs> you don't want to go there, do you? Do you sense no. that? Do you sense that journalists then are we going to are they going to get more partisan or less partisan? Um, well, I, I think we're going to continue to have a complicated uh, media environment. There are going to continue to be a lot of journalists uh, who, who have a, a partisan slant to what they do. They're going to continue to be journalists who try to be uh, nonpartisan and try to be objective. 
But there's a market for all of that, and that's the basic point, is as long as there is a niche in the market for different styles of journalism, different styles of journalism will exist. Do you sense that um, people will get burnt out? Uh, you know, in the muck ra- muckrakers era, do, did people burn out of all of the, you know, the palace intrigue? Is, is there a point where they just are exhausted by it and instead they'd rather just watch Netflix? Um, well, a lot of people do that anyway. I mean, most people don't pay very close attention to politics. This is another thing that uh, political junkies need to remember. Those of us who are obsessed with the day-to-day uh, workings of politics are uh, weird. Hmm. Uh, those of us who, who uh, wake up and immediately need to check the news are very strange. Most people uh, pay minimal attention to politics simply because they have busy lives and other things they would rather do. Uh, so um, I I don't think that uh, there's going to be a burnout because I don't think that most people are paying that close attention anymore. Anyway. No, I think you're right on. I think you're right on. Well, Justin, again, thank you so much for your time, for your insight. Uh, interesting, interesting world we're living in. And uh, partisan politics, nonpartisan journalism. It's. Can you imagine having to balance your professionalism, your need to, to go and get the facts and to tell the truth, along with the fact that... Uh, you have this really, for maybe the first time ever, this asymmetric relationship with the president, you know, where ideology, truth, what has been said in the past doesn't necessarily matter. It doesn't matter. Um, boy, how do you hold someone down to truth? Crazy times. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you make it through this crazy thing called life. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You know, it's a great point um, for so many that are caught up in the political world to the point that they're looking up, you know, the latest news every few hours. It, it maybe it, we need to remember that the majority of people don't. The majority of people are doing other things. They have lives. They have children. They have other blogs. They like podcasts they want. Or maybe maybe they're just going to Netflix, which isn't. Uh, which isn't a bad thing either. Uh, Terry's here. He's got some interesting new stats from Netflix. They had their earnings report yesterday, and it says the company CEO seems to think that uh, they're going to keep adding to their pile of users, I guess you could call them. That's not probably the best way to yeah, say it. Yeah, I wouldn't it. use but a you, pile. Yeah, it works. <laughs> the streaming service hits 50 million customers, faces stiff competition from Amazon. Um, they, they says they uh, – well, the, the things that caught my eye, one – he was asked, is Amazon or HBO like your main competition? Yeah. And he goes, it's not necessarily Amazon, not necessarily HBO. He says, we're all in this big ocean and we're all just sort of drops of water. So it's not, we're not really affecting each other. What affects us is people go to sleep. If people could just stay up all the time, they'd watch more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because that's – we're just trying to, to – because people are looking at, do I sleep or do I watch something like on Netflix or one of these services? He goes, that's really what we're competing against yeah. is sleep. Yeah. He also says uh, – they, they go, what's the future? He goes, where are your goals going forward? And he goes, well, YouTube streams a billion hours a day. We only stream a billion hours a week, so we have some area to catch up there. 
They, some, they some do. They own, oh, I did not know that. So YouTube is a billion hours a day, yeah. and Netflix, as they say, it's about a billion hours a week total streaming. Now, the part that really hurt my soul to, uh, a, to a core. Oh, boy, your soul's been hurt. What? Netflix signed an exclusive deal with Adam Sandler. Right? This, I know. This is his, nauseating. His movies are horrible. I can't They're, stand them. I mean, I mean universally. Well, there's a few way back that were, I mean, yeah, Waterboy. I mean, there's there's some, there's a few. The Wedding Singer. Yeah. Th- then he just sort of gave up because there was a threshold where now he could get an audience, right? right? And, and they were exclusively on Netflix. There's one that keeps popping up when I turn on Netflix and I, I saw it, didn't know what it was. So I click on the trailer and I'm like, oh, stop. <laughs> that was Adam Sandler. 500 million hours has been spent watching Adam Sandler movies. I saw yesterday that's it's working. It was 7 million man hours to build the Empire State Building, right? That's 71 Empire State Buildings. <laughs> and we spent that watching Adam Sandler. See, that's time you can't get back, folks. That's time that's just flushed. But it's a it's an interesting sign of the future that an Adam Sandler can go in, produce a bunch of content for them, and it sells. There's an audience yeah. for everything they're finding. Crazy. He just re-signed another oh, deal. Boy. Good stuff. That means more hours of Adam Sandler. Uh, Netflix, folks, it's taking over. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this show to give you the latest, greatest research, tools, the information you need to live a healthier, happier life. Happy days and happy tax day to you. I mean, I know for a lot of you, it's a really difficult day. For many of you like Terry, it's, you know, you've already received your refund and you are, uh, you know, redoing your backyard. Well, that'll happen at some point. For the rest of us, you know, we're, we're, we're still talking to our tax experts, answering a few extra questions, trying to figure out which children... No longer do we receive deductions for <sighs> tough times, tough times. Which ones you renounce? Oh, yeah. Last time we we had actually taken one of our children as a deduction, but he had filed individually and it ended up creating havoc. Right. Because these children just don't get how valuable they are to you <laughs> as a tax deduction. I They don't get it. That's funny. Um, it's also, by the way, National Animal Cracker Day. This is the day you get to just. Hmm. Sounds time. like more like a chip. That sounds like a potato chip. Or a stale cracker. Well, which could be an animal cracker. Could be. Yeah. You, there's certain animal crackers. I like the ones that are covered in like that yogurty white. With the sprinkles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the pink spring, pink and white. Oh, yeah. I could eat those all day. Mm. And as we've talked about, I like to eat the ears, maybe the legs. You know, if you're going to eat an animal cracker, you may as well impair them. Can't you just pop the whole thing in your mouth? They're kind of small. Well, you can. but Then it's over quickly. It's more humane. <laughs> it's humane well, you way. have to savor them. Yeah. They would want to be savored, don't you think? I don't like, know. I would, would you... want somebody to appreciate me. Yeah, if they're going to mm. eat you. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. 
Let's just not even go there. Um, today we got a very interesting topic, revenge. Hmm. We will be talking about revenge with a professor of psychology. And the interesting thing is um, it's a very complicated issue. And we always say that revenge is sweet, but it isn't always sweet. Sometimes it's very bitter. And there's some beautiful, though, research about, I think, humans when you get into revenge. Hmm. Because revenge in the end doesn't make you happy unless the revenge changes the offender. Then it becomes kind of beautiful. Not that you ever need to seek revenge, but the only revenge that makes one happy in the end is if you see the offender learning from the revenge. See, as a moviegoer, I, you know, a lot of people will like to go see those Taken films. They're all yeah. about revenge. Yeah. And yet the only way in which the offender is changed is they die. Yeah. So is that beautiful? No. Because and it, the, the, the research would even show that that kind of revenge doesn't help the person who's been offended. They might feel like the sweetness of, yes. The revenge died. business has been very sweet for Liam Neeson. Yes. Well, for the rest of us. With those movies, it just gets progressively worse because he ma- apparently makes it worse because then there's another movie. Well, now there needs to be as more revenge. As the story revenge. continues yeah, with it's more ugly. revenge That's and then it just not makes work. a worse movie. And yeah. In the end, though, revenge just usually doesn't pay off for any of us except the only reason Unless we you're would, Liam Neeson. Unless you're Liam Neeson making millions. Uh, by the way, your namesake. You were named mm, after Liam. No. After the Taken series started. No. I didn't change my name a few years back. Oh, didn't you? No. How do we know that? Anywho, we'll get to that fun in a few minutes, um, plus a little uh, talk about spring cleaning. It's time to open those windows, get the rugs out, put them out on the line, start banging the sticks against the rugs to get the dust out. Or just vacuum. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Try to pull the vacuum out. All that fun straight ahead. But first to the headlines with our own Terry South. Terry, what's going on? The Arkansas Supreme Court issued an order on Monday to bar Judge Wendell Griffin from hearing death penalty cases in the state following his participation in an anti-death penalty protest right after he ruled on Friday in the case. Griffin had issued a temporary restraining order on Arkansas from rapidly executing six prisoners in 11 days before the state's supply of lethal injection drugs expire at the end of the month. When he left the courthouse, he went to the rally, laid down on a cot, and tied himself to it as if he were condemned. By Saturday, Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge had asked the state's high court to reverse Griffin's ruling and to assign a new judge to the case. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled uh, rejecting a request by the state of Arkansas to execute one of the condemned men scheduled to die before the end of April. The death warrant for 56-year-old Don Davis was set to expire just 10 minutes after the Supreme Court decision came down. This is one of them last-minute, you know, jailhouse phone yeah. calls you're waiting for. They're called Supreme Court. Democrat and Republican congressional aides say former National Security Advisor Susan Rice did nothing wrong regarding surveillance procedures and unmasking of American names, NBC News reported on Monday. Rice has maintained that she did nothing wrong but did not deny that she sought to unmask names during her tenure as National Security Advisor, which is part of her job to kind of look at the intelligence people tried to 
turn that into something bigger. It seems Americans are losing faith in President Trump. A new Gallup poll released Monday shows less than half of Americans believe their commander-in-chief keeps his promises, a sharp decline from nearly two-thirds who believe in Trump in February. Just 45% of respondents in Monday's poll said they believe President Trump keeps his promises down from 62% two months ago. There was a... uh, a uh, there was a poll yesterday. You were Rasmussen. Was that the, yes. Ra- the yeah. Rasmussen poll showing that he had a fifty percent approval rating? You were asking me, yeah, kind of, what what is what's the about? status of that poll? A lot of pollsters don't like Rasmussen because they only use landlines in their polling, which you know is is the older generation. And right? the biggest trend with phones is nobody has landlines anymore. They all use cell phones, and so it seems that Land Rasmussen lines. is missing a huge part of the electorate when they go out there and ask people. Yeah. Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen admitted Monday that getting tax reform bill to President Trump's desk by August is not realistic. Munchen uh, himself originally set the deadline for late February, so that passed, just a week after he was sworn in to lead the Treasury Department. Um, he's just saying it's a really difficult thing and it's not going to happen. The lack of a health care bill complicates taxes. So we'll oh. see how that goes. Trump also alluded to this in a Fox News interview last week. On Sunday, a group, uh, this is the end finally. Oh boy. On Sunday, a group of demonstrators showed up in front of the AT&T building at 33 Thomas Street in New York to call attention to the purported NSA activity going on in that building and to exercise the malevolent, or malevolent energy and inform, information coursing through the AT&T monolith. Wow. Participants wore tinfoil hats, held mirrors up in the building to create a giant surveillance feedback loop as a creative and colorful and quite over the top and funny is kind of the protest. Noah Harley, one of the organizers, said that the estimated 60 to 70 people showed up overall. Uh, during the demonstration, they called on many people, including Dale Earnhardt Jr., Confucius, Max, Malcolm X, and Gandhi, to confuse and foil this building's operation, prevent this building from successfully collecting information from now on, prevent this building from exerting fear from now on, and it goes on and on wow. and on. So they protested and alleged NSA they say it was successful because, first, on a physical level, because we think the building shrunk by about 40 feet – which corresponds to the space they fill the two floors that NSA was using, <laughs> allegedly. No one actually knows. In addition to any physical changes that might have caused the building, Hartley says, uh, also helped call attention to the collusion between the NSA and AT&T. Yeah. Wow. Weird. So they performed an exorcism on a building in New York. And uh, did they get any new data from any of these people they were channeling? Apparently not. I'm not sure why Dale Earnhardt Jr. was involved, but... He's just a great racer. He was there. (laughs) How crazy is that? Boy, that's one you don't want to miss. Don't want to miss that. Interesting stuff. So much to talk about today. Right. Oh, hold on, Matt. Oh, what? I've just been informed from the other room. Apparently, we're getting a phone call. Your your tax guy's on the phone. My tax guy? Why would he be calling the show? I have no idea. My tax guy's calling? My tax guy, Walter's his name. And, uh, okay, let's do this. Let's just take the call because I want to, I mean, everybody today, it's, you know, today's the day you're turning in your tax form. So uh, Walter apparently has some questions for me. Walter, are you there? Mr. Townsend, uh, it, it's me. It's Walter Crick. Hello, Walter. Uh, so are the taxes done? Are we all ready to go? Well, you know, they're almost done. I, I just need to ask you a few questions regarding, you know, those taxes that you just filed. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. you know, I just want to say, your full cooperation is greatly appreciated. I do have your full cooperation, don't I, Mr. Town? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, full, I mean, I, I, they're my taxes, so I've been fully cooperating the entire time. I will be, I'll be compliant, I'll, whatever, yeah. Yeah, let's just, what do you need wonderful, to know? Wonderful. What do you need okay. to know? Let's begin. 
Uh, Mr. Townsend, I understand that in addition to working as a full-time employee at BYU Broadcasting, uh, you run a separate business as a relationship yeah. coach, correct? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, uh, on Form 8829, you deducted $1,000 for in-app purchases you made as uh, the mayor of a place called uh, Townton Abbey. Yes. And yes, I did. Let's just ignore for the time being the fact that, you know, as a mayor, you should have filled out different paperwork. But the Let's just focus on the fact that business purchases need to be items that you, you know, exclusively use for your business. Is uh, is this Sim City game something you use exclusively for your business, Mr. Townsend? Uh, yeah, it's something I use exclusively at my business, uh-huh. at my place of business. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. And as I prepare to do my business. You're playing it right now as we're speaking, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yes, I'm just checking on it. You, you reminded me that I have to uh, get the ship loaded to get all my stuff sent okay. out to Let, Europe. If you could put your phone down. Let's, let's move on. Okay, go right now, ahead. Now, I see here several receipts from Chili's uh, where it looks like you ordered an unusually large number of shrimp salads. And uh, it looks like you're claiming the 8% tips you left were charitable donations. Uh, but, you know, surely you must know that your waitress, I, I see her name was uh, Darlene, mm-hmm. you know, she's not a 501c3 charitable organization. And you know, even if she was, come on, hmm. 8%, that's hardly charitable. Well, well, I don't know. Walter, have you ever met Darlene? You've never met her, have you? No, but... I'm if sure, you knew her, you know, she's a single mother trying to get by. She's fantastic, and and if you knew her, you'd realize that her service was incredibly charitable. So eight uh, percent tips seem more than fair to me. It all, I mean, it's double what I normally do. You know, Mister Townsend, I, I'm supposed to remain neutral and professional, but uh, as a human being, you sir, you just make me sick. <laughs> oh. But uh, it's kind of rude. Let's just finish this up. We're nearly through, Mr. Townsend. Just a couple more questions. Now, I understand your son is running for student body president. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he ran, well, he ran. That's yeah. very admirable. You know, I, I wish him luck. You know, if he if he wants to win, though, I, he may want to distance himself from you as quickly as possible. It see, it seems here you've deducted several fruit baskets to various administrators and advisors. Yeah. What else can you tell me about those fruit baskets? Well, I mean, I mean, I was just trying to help, uh, you know, spread the joy, the love. Um, some some people call them bribes, but I, I just call them see. love sharing baskets. But but Mr. Townsend, that according to Code Section One Six Two Subsection C, that you know that that says that bribes and kickbacks are not deductible. No, right, yeah, those weren't bribes. Pardon me? Those were not bribes. Those were love. So, I mean, people say that those are bribes, but uh, some people, I just call them love baskets of love and fruit. Enjoy. All right. One last question, Mr. Townsend. You have uh, six children I see here, is that correct? Yes, I do, yeah, six, yeah. Six of them. Now that's strange. I'm I'm seeing here you've got another couple of dependents for whom you failed to provide social security numbers, which, mm. as you know, are required to claim them as dependents. Yeah. Uh, looks like their names are Rock or Rocky and uh, Chip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have. 
They don't have Social Security's uh, numbers yet. They're kind of new. They're kind of recent. I just recently we got I we we got those too. So these are these are your children then. Mm, yeah, they're they're let's just say they're a chip off the old block. You know what I mean? They're they're kind of they're my offspring. They're. I see. Yeah. So uh, you want to claim them as dependents? Well, yeah. I mean, they're they say passing a kidney stone is very much like having oh, a child, yeah, and so these are. These are like children. And I think I have all the information I need to finish up my report. Okay. Thank you for your time. Good. No, thank you, Walter. Oh. And have a, have a nice have a nice day. Oh, wait, one more one more piece of advice. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if I were you, I uh, I wouldn't plan on leaving the country anytime soon. Mm. Wow. You have a good day, sir. Thanks, Walt. Wow. I wonder what that means. Not going to. Did Walter seem angry to you? A little bit. See, when I do my taxes, I, it isn't followed up with a warning not to leave the country. I know, and then he got all. That's usually something when maybe a legal procedure is in the future. They yeah. want to, you know, contact you for further yeah. information. He, he, I don't know. He's kind of moody. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to use him anymore. After he, if, maybe I shouldn't. He say didn't. That. He didn't seem to be working with your ideal of what you want your taxes to look like. Right. Yeah. He had a lot of weird questions. And he questioned my integrity a lot. Mm. Those kind of seemed like legitimate questions, though. It almost seemed like you were trying to cut corners a little. What do you mean? No, I mean, I'm running a town. I'm running a business. I'm running a show. I have new family members. I mean, I'm, I'm a busy man. And he's questioned if I'm bribing people. And is a fruit basket a bribe? No. I mean, seriously. It's a fruit basket yeah. with $100 in it. It's not a bribe. Oh, there was cash in the, in the, in the basket? You oh. might want to disclose that. I don't, well, there wasn't he cash. He may not have known that. It was gift cards. It was gift cards. But not cash. No one would give cash. Gift cards to where? And that may be the To the bank. Deciding. It was like a Visa oh. card. Okay. Yeah, that's. Who's going to well, put $100 cash and yeah. just give a Visa card? It's like cash. I don't think I'd ever buy one of those Visa cards because there's always a fee that you have to pay on top of the $100. I didn't – I'm not paying a fee. I just paid the $100. So you, you didn't pay the fee either? No. Hmm. I gave him a basket. Seems like you're very interested in paying as little as possible. Why are we not talking about the charitable donation that I gave? I give it every time I go to a restaurant, charitable your, donation. Your 8% tip? Yeah. Kind of cheap. It's double what normally? I normally do. Usually you four? Depends on the service. Wow. Wow. This lady was incredible, though. She just killed it. Anywho, we we hope all y'all are uh, having a great tax day. Hope you have better meetings than I just had with Walt. Bad idea doing that on the radio. Never doing that again. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll be talking about revenge. Is it sweet? Uh, Apparently not. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
An eye for an eye will only make the world blind, Mahatma Gandhi once said. Today, we're discussing revenge. Why do we seek it? Does revenge make us actually feel better? And here to answer these questions is psychology professor Dr. Susan Boone. She's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary and uh, is a social psychologist by training, is passionate about the topic of personal relationships and uh, has a particular fascination with their darker side of relationships. Susan, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. This is, uh, I think, a very interesting topic of revenge. Um, Now, talk to us. Why, I mean, is revenge, it seems like it's a very kind of natural thing that we're drawn to as humans. Absolutely. There's all kinds of evidence that it's uh, evolutionarily based and that we're not, it's not just people, it's not just humans who take revenge. There's certain animal species where there's evidence of that. So it seems to be something that's kind of hardwired into our systems and there's evidence of it in the historical records as far back as it goes in pretty much every culture. And what are we seeking with revenge? Is, are we trying to, is it about equalizing the injustice? Is it about inflicting the same pain? What is it we're after when we're in seeking revenge? I think there's a variety of different goals that it can serve, but both of those for sure are, are big reasons that people take revenge, big motivations. There's a number of others as well. What are some of the others? Uh, sometimes, at least our participants, you know, and, and we're talking with people and we're talking with them face-to-face on some occasions, so it's a little hard to know if you can take what they say as the gospel truth, but sometimes they say it's about trying to deter behavior, you know, trying to make sure that someone doesn't do the same thing over again. Sometimes they talk about how they're trying to induce empathy in the other person, in the person who provoked them or harmed them, by giving them a taste of their, their own medicine so that the, the person who harmed them knows what it feels like. And again, sort of the idea of educating them. So, you know, I don't want you to, uh, I want you to know what this feels like so you don't do it to me again, so you realize it's hurtful, it's harmful. Um, sometimes they talk about doing it for pro-social reasons, so less so in relationships. You don't find a whole lot of this in, in, in when we speak with people about revenge in their romantic relationships, but particularly some of the work on workplace revenge suggests that they're doing it sort of you know, to, to help themselves and their co-workers out. You know, when they've got a, a nasty boss and, and they, they want to do something to sort of send that boss a message that helps not only them, but also their co-workers in that organization. Interesting. So that is, I mean, you know, we're we're going to make it, we may go down in flames, but we're going to make it so the boss doesn't keep doing this to everyone else. But you brought up uh, interpersonal relationships, marriages, things like that. Revenge takes place in those relationships as well. It might be more subtle, it seems like, but, you know, ignoring somebody that's that has hurt your feelings or uh, rejecting, you know, touch. And uh, love, and if if somebody has offended or hurt us, talk about um, revenge in relationships like marriage. Uh, we haven't personally studied married couples. Most of our participants are in dating relationships, but we I, I did have uh, an interview one time with a woman who wanted to get even with her husband and chose not to, which is a good thing because she'd contemplated killing him, actually. But yeah, there's every reason to believe that it happens. If it happens in dating relationships, I don't see any particularly good reason it wouldn't happen in marital relationships. And of course, there's all kinds of uh, the stuff that makes it to the news is often occurring between uh, married partners or former married partners. There was just a case up here in down east in Canada somewhere where someone burnt down uh, ex-husband's house, I think, is mm. what happened. Or yeah. it, was, it might have been the ex-wife's house. I cannot quite recall. 
Is it – does something come over somebody that's seeking revenge? Is it – do they actually lose some of their competency as they're so caught up in the need and the desire to seek revenge? You know, I think that's a common thing to think, but I'm, you know, I think it may in some cases. You know, certainly if if it's a very, very severe provocation and the person responds, you know, in a rage, in a fit of rage, and they're, and they're not thinking straight, I think that's possible. But certainly in our research, the kinds of things that people were reporting having done or in some some of our studies having done to them were much milder and more mundane and occasionally not taken not enacted right away. You know, they had a little bit of time to calm down. So I don't think, I mean, sometimes they had, there was a little bit of planning involved. I don't think that they're necessarily, I think in most cases, they're, they're not sort of overcome with rage and not mm-hmm. thinking clearly. Yeah, it's premeditated in a way. I, they're well, they're yeah, planning yeah. it. In some cases, yes. Is um, They always say that uh, revenge is sweet, but in your research, a lot of the data shows it's probably more bittersweet. Talk about talk about the bitter side of it. What what does come of revenge, and what is does it still turn out sweet for people? Um, most of that research is not my research, and Steve Yoshimura's research, the lead author on the article that uh, that you heard of. But what we think may be going on there is that people's sense as to what they will gain from revenge is just not it's just not accurate. So for one thing. If you think about it, you know, that you're responding to a provocation. You're responding to something that's already happened. Well, nothing you do after it's happened can undo what was done to you. And so part of it, we think, is that there's a, a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of what, what can be achieved or just how good it will feel to see the other person suffer. And also in terms of the, the, the likelihood that it's not going to be that sweet is that there are potential consequences both for you as the Avenger and for the person, the target, the avengee, you, you may take revenge in such a way that the effects are more severe than you intended or that you wanted. There could be other people that are harmed, and, you know, that may be something that you didn't count on when you first decided to take revenge and are feeling perhaps guilty about. There are strong social norms against revenge. It's not something, especially in certain kinds of relationships, it's something that's deeply frowned upon. So there are self esteem and self-image concerns, public self-image concerns. Perhaps you are now tainted in the eyes of your your social network as the kind of person who's vindictive and petty and who won't let things go. There are all kinds of reasons that it it could end up being something other than uh, the victory, the the vindication that you're hoping for. Oh, wow. I I never thought of so many of those that yeah, there's it's there is a backlash socially. We we then don't trust people that uh, seek revenge, except it's uh, then it's such a natural, it's such a natural phenomenon, huh? We it's natural to all of us, and yet we don't trust those that overtly seek it out. Yeah, it's, you know, in 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 contemporary Western society, at least, this is not you know, revenge is something that's it's really quite quite viewed quite negatively, and so to be known as the kind of person who engages in revenge. That's, that's a negative thing. We're currently in, engaging in some early, early research looking at revenge via social media, so through Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And one of the reasons that we think this is a really interesting new way of getting revenge is that depending on how you go about it, you can remain anonymous or it could be ha- perhaps be less clear that you're the person that's undertaking the revenge. And that might diminish some of those concerns around developing a negative reputation. But absolutely, given that people 
view revenge quite dimly. They condemn it in, in a, you know, when it's, when it's real and happening in, in your social network. We're not usually like, yay, you know, we, we see it in the movies, we're like, wow, that's great when, when uh, Luke Skywalker gets his revenge against the Emperor. You know, that's, that's good. But in real life, we don't seem to find it quite so uh, enjoyable and such a good thing. So people are concerned about the, that social image and, and, and having a, a tainted reputation, a damaged reputation, a tarnished reputation because you've done something that other people think it was wrong. How do you not get caught up in the wave of, because the pain, I mean, you, I, I see it a lot with divorcing couples and mm-hmm. who caught their partner having an affair or doing something and um, they just have such a hard time of getting rid of the thought. So they keep thinking, I guess, of ways to make this person pay. But I, I guess you can get to a point where making someone pay makes it so you never live. It certainly could. Yeah, if you're consumed by thoughts of revenge or just, you know, really find yourself preoccupied with some that, that would be a very difficult situation to find yourself in. And, you know, what the research is suggesting here is that even if you took revenge, you're not going to feel any better. And now you've got all kinds of reasons, particularly if anyone else knows that you've done this, you know, now you're your image is tar- tarnished and maybe you're not so proud of yourself for, for giving in to the urge. And, um, you know, there's, there's potentials for, the, for that to sort of compound. It doesn't really reduce your anger. It may not reduce your anger. You may not feel any better about what you've done now that they are suffering. Mm. Even if you do, you've got to contend with the fact that people know what you've done. Well, and it's like the two wrongs don't make a right. Exactly. And, but, but then, too, there are real people that need to be stopped from doing um, – you know, painful things to each other. It almost seems like there is an appetite for this as there's other – there's television shows like Cheaters or other shows where they they go almost socially try to shame people for what they've done or are doing. And um, is is there any social benefit to revenge? Well, that's, that's a very good question. And the research does suggest that there, that there are. There are some um, – some people who study revenge who think that revenge can serve important informal social regulation um, purposes. So, you know, something like shaming someone. I mean, if you're not directly harming them, if you're if you're taking them down a notch or two by by highlighting what they've done publicly, that doesn't necessarily imply that you're a vindictive person. If they cheat on you and you cheat back in return, okay, you're not looking so good. But if all you do is bring to the broader attention of your social network how they've mistreated you. You know, that could be considered revenge. Uh, a fair bit of what our participants do when it's relational revenge is that kind of reputation defamation is the word that we use. So they spread gossip or they um, sometimes they will share secrets that they've been told. That kind of thing doesn't necessarily make you look bad, but it clearly communicates to the your social network what this person has done hmm. wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's one obvious benefit there. And I guess part of it's crossing the line, right? Because, I mean, it's one thing to defame someone's reputation. It's another thing to just tell the truth. And, right. you know, like, yeah, he had an affair. And not, yeah. I'm not going to keep that secret anymore, um, but I'm also not going to spread it. I guess that's the line that every person has to make individually. Well, we had a, a participant in one of our earliest studies who, you know, I think even she was starting to realize that she'd crossed the line, that she'd gone too far, that she should have been over it by now. Um, she, her ex-boyfriend at the time had unregistered her from all of her courses at university, unbeknownst to her, of Ooh. course. So she shows up for final exams, ready to write 
does all that studying and everything, gets there, is not allowed to write because she's not actually registered in the course anymore. So she lost an entire term. So she was very angry and did all the right things in terms of bringing it to the university's attention. And the, the ex-boyfriend was, he was silly enough to have done this at a, at a public computer terminal where he was on camera. So they knew it was him. So they did disciplinary action. But she didn't feel it was severe enough. And even a couple of years later, she was really, really angry about this. So she did things like write to people, to prospective employers and prospective graduate programs and things like that, and tell them what he had done. And this is a couple of years later when she's talking to us. And she was having problems in her current relationship because she clearly wasn't over this. Yeah, she wasn't moving on. Yeah, she wasn't moving on. And so, you, you, you know, that line between, you know, at what point did her decision to share with others what he had done and how he had harmed her. At what point did it cross over, like you're saying, from from tr- telling the truth to sort of an excessive form of revenge? I mean, a little bit of letting people know that he'd done this would, I think, you know, few people would say was inappropriate. But at one point, you know, how many months or years later does it become a problem for her, an indication that, sh- that she needs to work through her feelings as well as, a, a, you know, maybe sort of, it might appear to other people as a warning sign that wow, you know, this woman, this woman doesn't forget. She no. certainly doesn't forgive. No, exactly, and it doesn't necessarily, in a weird way, it, it just makes her more angry, more, uh, more dark, and more pain that she has to now source through and, and and push through. We'll take a break and continue this discussion with Susan Boone. She is a professor of um, psychology and social psychology talking to us um, about revenge. It isn't always sweet, folks, and a lot of times we can't determine how we will actually feel after uh, seeking revenge with somebody. So maybe forgiveness is the, the attitude we ought to take. We'll take a break, come back, find out some more information about forgiving instead of seeking revenge. Up next, stick with us. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about revenge. It isn't always sweet, and uh, joining us to talk about it on the line is Professor Susan Boone. She's a professor at the University of Calgary and is in the Department of Psychology there. Also has a wonderful website, personalrelationships.ca, um, and is uh, really just helping us understand this issue of revenge, which is such a natural thing. But doesn't necessarily pay out the sweet uh, the sweet results that we we might think it does. Uh, thank you again, Susan, for being with us. You're welcome. When you um, when you look at it, uh, the, the, I guess part of it is that there's really a system of play going on here. And do you see where do you see? Um, I mean, I know symmetry. You want it sounds like what people want from revenge, really, where it, where it seems to. Help, if it does help at all, is if I see the person change that is harming people. Mm-hmm. Is that is that the ultimate reason we're seeing – I mean, where we derive more pleasure, I guess healthier pleasure, is if we can see that there's change. I think that's definitely one of the factors that can contribute to that sense of pleasure with it. I think it also depends, is this an act – you know, are you the person who suffered originally or are you watching – 
are you an observer? Are you are you present when when someone else is is taking revenge and you weren't the original victim? There's a little bit of work looking at the aesthetic appeal of revenge. And I think that that aesthetic appeal would be different if, if you were the original victim or if you're just watching. So if you're looking at movies and things like that or stories that people tell each other about revenge, then it's less so about the person changing and more about, you mentioned symmetry earlier. So proportionality of consequences, for example, is very important, the extent to which there's a reasonable calibration between the harm that was done to the victim and the harm that the victim then meets upon the, the, the original perpetrator. But if you're looking at when you yourself are the victim, and so you're retaliating, you're taking revenge, then I think it's, the research is definitely suggesting that it's important that, that that sense of sweetness, that sense of satisfaction, psychological satisfaction or pleasure at, at what you've done is definitely heightened if that message has come across, if the, the person on the receiving end, the target of the revenge, understands what is being done and why it's being done, and if they then um, perhaps commit to changing their behavior. I mean, in a relationship context, if it's an ongoing relationship, then that seems to be really important. People are more likely to say that the revenge that they took had a positive outcome if it changed the partner's behavior in a positive way, exactly as you suggested. Interesting. And I guess... But you just have to keep the revenge in check, right? I think so. I think that's that's a really, really important thing. And, of course, there's all kinds of psychological processes that, that complicate that process of, of trying to calibrate appropriately and, and you know, match, match the degree of harm that's done, been done. And for one thing, when you're the victim, uh, you tend to perceive whatever's been done to you, the wrongdoing, is more severe than the person who actually took those actions, so the offender thinks that the harm that they've caused is less severe than you do. So when then you retaliate, of course, you're retaliating in, in concert with what your perception was, and it's likely to come across to the target, to the person who was the original offender, as more severe than what they did. So we have a sort of natural inbuilt bias that would tend to promote cycles of revenge that escalate. Hmm. Yeah, that's... Um... Boy, that interpretation is a big deal. And especially it almost seems like you got to manage your interpretation, but also you have to manage kind of the reactivity of it. So it's not coming out of your most reactive self. And then I guess to me that would change the definition. So it's now – to me, revenge is uglier versus you know consequences or other things. If I thought it out, played it out, made the right interpretation – did it in a healthier way, still wanted to have the long-term relationship and kept that in play, then I might not call it revenge anymore. I would just call it, you know, learning. Yeah, yeah. Well, And you raise a really good point there because in our original set of interviews, I think there were only three people that used the word revenge. We were very careful not to. We asked people to tell us about a time when they'd gotten even ah. with a romantic partner or they'd gotten back at a romantic partner. And uh, I believe there were only three people that spontaneously of their own decision used the word revenge. And if I remember properly, two of them used it to say, well, I didn't get revenge. You know, Uh. they denied that what they were doing was revenge. So I I think, you know, when we do this work, we're often very, very careful in the language that we use. And it's because we think that there's sort of a, you know, the minute you use the word revenge, I, I, I like to sort of use the analogy of capital R revenge and little r revenge. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, so when you think of 
of revenge, the kind of stuff that hits the media. You know, you're looking at Lorena Bobbitt right. and, you know, slicing body parts off and, or, you know, burning yachts and burning houses and, and branding people and, you know, very violent, sometimes murderous acts. I mean, the, te- the stuff that hits the news is, is, is extreme. And so that's what comes to mind. So if you ask people, you know, when's the last time you got revenge? Well, they, if they think with the capital R, then they're like, well, never. You know, I would never mm-hmm. do that. We had all kinds of people also being very, very clear to us that they'd never been physical when they'd taken revenge. So as you had mentioned earlier, it's more things like giving people the cold shoulder or spreading a rumor or giving them the silent treatment, um, you know, deliberately being late when they know the person knows they don't like them being late. It was those sort of milder, more mundane kind of everyday actions is what we found in our research. Yeah. That, especially, in, especially in relationships, and romantic relationships, especially, especially when they were ongoing ones. I mean, you do have to be, like you said, very, very careful. If you want that relationship to persist after you get even or take revenge, then you've got to be very careful in determining what you're going to do because you send, you do send clear messages yeah. when you, when you take this action. If it, if, if it can be tied back to you and the person on the receiving end knows that you're the one that did it and you're wanting to maintain a relationship with them, then you've got to be careful that that message isn't something like, I don't value you. I will treat you any old way I feel like if you cross me. You know, I'm not a person to be messed with. I mean, some of those messages are kind of strong, kind of harsh, and a partner ought to run away at the first sign of those if if those are the messages you're sending. Yeah, and if you're, I mean, if your motives and response aren't aligned to your values and your principles, you're going to pay for your revenge anyway. You're, yeah. you're just going to keep suffering. Yeah, or if or if they reveal those motives and principles to be vindictive and petty and unforgiving and so on and so forth and and disrespectful of the other individual, then they will they'll they'll make that they'll make those decisions according. They'll say, you know, I'm I'm not into this. And in one of the studies with Steve, we asked people what they'd learned from being the victims or the targets of revenge. And that's what some people learned, that you know, it's not worth having a relationship with that person. Mm. They're the kind of person who can't forgive. They're the kind of person who's vindictive and petty, and you know, I don't want to be with them. I, I know a lot of your work, um, your research is around, and, and, um, is around this idea of forgiveness. How does forgiveness and unforgiveness tie into revenge? You know, that's a really interesting question, and interestingly enough, when, when I look at those things, I tend not to look at them in concert. So we've never really asked people, you know, you took revenge, why didn't you forgive? Or you forgave, why didn't you take revenge? But they're clearly tied together, and one of the really interesting things that some people have found in their work is that there's nothing saying that you can't do both. You maybe can't do them simultaneously. I mean, obviously, forgiving and and spanking someone for their bad behavior at the same time seems a little bit incompatible. But there is some work suggesting that in, in the real world, real married couples, real dating partners, don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, a little bit of punishment that fits the crime and then forgiving you after I know that, you know, when I know, when I'm sure that you know what you've done is wrong, now I can forgive you. And the, I guess the one thing I would say in terms of the literature is that this, this is a bit, I need to be a little bit careful when I say this, but there's, there's some evidence that forgiveness is maybe not always the best course of action if you want your romantic partner to learn what they've done wrong. Because so often when we forgive, we don't, a lot of it's just sort of left unspoken, right? You don't go and say, I forgive you. Right. The person doesn't say, please forgive me. I mean, that can happen. But the research shows that that's fairly rare. So forgiveness tends to be more indirect. And it's kind of like just because things go back to the way they were. And depending on what's been done, 
and how much negative interaction, negative behavior is going on in that relationship. If things just kind of return to normal, the partner who's committing these wrongdoings, whose behavior is, is routinely upsetting you, may not get the message. They may not realize that what they're doing is wrong and it upsets you. And so sometimes a little bit of, you know, you want to call it revenge, you want to call it punishment, you want to call it getting back. You know, I don't exactly know what to call it in every instance. And we, we debate among ourselves, revenge researchers, you know, what's yeah. the difference between revenge and punishment. Um, but sometimes, there, like you said, there need to be consequences. And, and it's okay for there to be a consequence. Some of this research is starting to suggest that sometimes it's better if there's a consequence so that the person learns. I that, agree. That educational function, that deterrence function, only if they know what they've done wrong, only if they know that what they did hurt you, can they then choose, if they wish, to change that behavior. It's and a system, if, right? And if the system never gets any feedback, exactly. real feedback that it needs to change exactly. because we forgive so quickly. I mean, I guess – so there is a difference between I can forgive and feel love towards you again and still you need to go get help about what you did. Absolutely. Or you need to know that it's not appropriate and that, you know, that, you know, I forgive you this time. If you try it again, I'm sorry. You know, yeah, that, that's, yeah. yeah I love that. There's, there's absolutely. And that's healthy, right? I mean, healthy means there has to be actual learning, actual change taking place, not just words being. And I guess this is what's so complicated about all of this, Susan, is just the terms we use. Like even when you make the comment and now I could see why you have to be careful saying it, that forgiving isn't always the key, like it's not always best, but it. You're right. It's it, there's more to life than forgiving. It's also forgiving and learning and changing and growing. And we just use the terms, and then the terms kind of mess us up. Like revenge is a term. It's just a word, but you can have big R, little R revenge, yeah. and it impacts big piece or little piece. Yes, and and there's there are differences if you, specifically. Specifically with forgiveness, there hasn't been much research yet. I'm not aware of any research looking at what revenge means to people, which is, now you're making me think of, of a That's interesting, yeah. But when it comes to forgiveness, there's actually been a handful of studies looking at, you know, how do, how do real people define forgiveness? And one of the things that's, that's uh, really clear is they don't define it the same way that, that researchers do. And there are these beliefs out there in the general public that sort of to forgive is to forget. Right. Well, to forgive means that you've got to reconcile with that person. You've got to stay with them. You've got to still be friends. You've got to still be romantic partners. Things have to go back to normal, back to the way they were. And researchers and, and, and forgiveness scholars will say, no, you know, that's, that, you know there's, there's forgiving and then there's reconciling. And those are two different things. And sometimes you can forgive and never, ever tell that person. You can forgive within yourself and move on uh, in a positive direction in your own life without ever communicating that forgiveness to the other person. So true. Susan, awesome stuff. Susan Boone's her name. Go check out, uh, her website, personalrelationships.ca. And, uh, you can get some great insight there as well. And, uh, keep it up folks. Remember revenge. It's just a lot of it's about the terms, but it's, it's more about the spirit you feel. Are you seeking to help truly, or just hurt If you hurt people, you're going to keep feeling pain. Trust me. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. When we come back, we'll be talking spring cleaning with Caitlin Thomas. Back in a bit.
Spring is in the air, folks. The Easter Bunny has come and gone, and the sun has decided to come out full-time now, which also means one thing, spring cleaning. Why is this something we do uh, during the springtime and not the wintertime? Caitlin Thomas is here with us to help us uh, talk about it and understand a little bit more. Caitlin, are you a spring cleaner? I am a... Well, kind of, yeah. Yeah, I'm a spring cleaner. See, it used to be... But guess what else I am? What? I'm an aunt. Yeah, you have a brand new cute little baby niece. I do. Niece. I'm excited. What's I her name? I just had to say that. Her name's Maxwell. Maxwell. Yeah. She'll be a little Max. Little Max. Anyways, I just had to say that because I'm super excited. We've all been up in my house since about 4.30 this morning. How cool. So it happened last night. The, yeah, really early this morning. This morning. Mm-hmm. How great. Yay. Congratulations so spring to you and your sister. really is a time of new birth. It Look really is. And it's a weird time where we... We have to spring clean. Yeah, it's this time where we feel – and I always think it's funny. Like why is it when all of a sudden the sun comes out that we feel this need? So I looked it up and it said spring cleaning comes – there's actually history to it – from the days when homes were heated by fireplaces. Yeah. And efforts were made to prevent heat from escaping, right? So the coming of spring in warm weather was an opportunity to air the house and clean it of the soot and all the grime accumulated over the winter months. Ah. So that's why – they would open up the windows and like clean out their house because they were getting rid of all the soot that they. Well, held I remember in the as a child because my mother grew up in a place that was probably heated by a coal or a uh, you know wood burning stove. Wood burning stove. And so we would open up all of our windows. We'd vacuum everything. We'd wipe dust down all it. the walls. Mm-hmm. You dust everything. And the funny thing is, we have better filtration. We have better f- stuff going on. So you may not need to wipe down every single wall, every single right. part of your house. But it's like a tradition that's kind of just carried yeah. on. We used to carry the, the carry the rugs outside, and you'd have to beat yeah. the rugs with a. Well, yeah. and they said that many of us still enjoy the opportunity provided by spring to let in the fresh air because mm-hmm. it is. Um, clean our windows and wash the floor under the refrigerator, things that we just don't right, do, right. Um, as well as other difficult-to-reach places. Another reason for cleaning taking place in spring is that warmer weather and longer days work as a stimulant for a lot of people to become more active. Mm, there you go. So it's like the sun comes out, the days are longer, and we just – something it just literally stimulates us to do more things. We're like, I got to get busy. I got to get doing something. So I it's have some idea. spring okay, cleaning yeah. tips for all yeah. of my – you know. Stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads or anyone that does or the like cleaning. Or like on the weekend, we could get everybody involved in these. Right. Or the kids. Yeah. Um, some fun ones. So the best – did you know that the best refrigerator cleaner is a combination of salt and soda water? Did not know that. Yeah. You can mix them and the bubbling combines um, to make like a really good cleaner for the inside of your fridge. And then you get in there and start washing it down? Yeah. Okay. So clean your screens from uh-huh. your window with a scrap of carpet. Oh, there you go. That's I don't a great know. idea. It makes a powerful brush and removes all the dirt. I don't. I was that was an interesting one that I found online. I was like, oh, mom. That's a I, great this idea. is one for my mom. Hi, mom. I hope you're listening, even though you're tired. So we probably ought not cut out the carpet <clears throat> out of the middle no, of the carpet. No, go get a carpet sample. Okay. Yeah, go get a sample. <laughs> get <out> a little. <clears throat> okay. Um, if the drapes are looking dirty, take them off the window um, and run them through the air fluff cycle in the dryer with a wet towel. The wet towel will pull off the dust. Great idea. For 15 minutes, and then hang them back on the windows immediately. Holy cow. That's that. if you have drapes. Right. If you have, I don't know how many people have drapes, yeah. but. What do you I do with your blinds if your blinds are looking a little worn out? You get one of those Swiffer. Picker uppers. Yeah. <laughs> Not like the mobs, but they yeah. have like the dusters. Clean them off. Yeah. Um, clean the blades of your ceiling fan by covering them with a coat of furniture polish. Oh, really? Interesting. So huh? you cover them after? Yes. Yeah, so you wipe off the excess and lightly buff it. 
Okay. So you put the furniture polish on top and then you wipe it all off and like. Yeah. I don't dare turn my fan on because I think there's a lot of dust on the top of it and I just don't want to create a dust storm. Yeah. Dust devil. Yeah, it was just gross, right? Yeah. If you've well, ever taken the time to look up there, you're like, ew. Let's yeah, not do that. I can't believe I'm like circulating that. Right. Sometimes comforters, blankets, and pillows don't need to be cleaned, but they do need to be aired out. Um, so just take them outside and hang them on the clothesline. And clothesline? Who has a clothesline anymore? One. Make one. That's true. Yeah. Because then they get they smell all nice. Oh the yeah, and they air. just get the Febreze and just spray it all and everything. It's just a good time just to feel breathe. good again. It is great advice, Happy Caitlin spring. Thomas, and congrats to your new baby, Thank Maxwell. You. I'm so excited to meet niece. Her. Good stuff. Caitlin Thomas is her name, and uh, she's here every week. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.